0: Good evening, and welcome to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. I'm Nate, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Gretchen and JM. How are you guys doing tonight?
1: Good. Really good. Yes. Feels very autumnal right now.
0: Mm.
2: (laughs) Finally.
1: I'll be getting (laughs) into it shortly, but I'm reading a lot of autumnal stuff right now. Cool. Ah, nice. Yes.
2: It's been quite hot in Albany. Then it suddenly started raining, and now it is quite autumnal here, and I've been enjoying that. I haven't had much time to do as much reading outside of classes, but I have been watching some spooky films and stuff to get into the spirit of October.
0: Nice. Oh, anything good?
2: Yeah, I've been watching some folk horror sort of films and some BBC plays. One of them that was called uh, *Pendle's Fen* was hmm. was really good.
0: Yeah, cool. I need to get into some of that stuff myself. I haven't really been watching too many movies. Mm. lately, but I did see the Exorcist in the theater. They were doing like a 50th anniversary <gasps> type thing, so that was kind of neat.
1: Yeah. Cool. The new one or the original?
0: No, no, the original one, yeah.
1: Mm. Oh, okay. Because there's one that just came out, right? Yeah, I think so. Exorcist Believer or something like right. that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting mixed receptions, yeah. for sure. They yeah. typically do, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, I have seen a couple of not the most positive reviews about that, but... I haven't seen it myself, so I, I can't tell.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Going to definitely check out some horror movies this fall season and maybe even read some more weird horror fiction off-podcast. <sighs> yes. Uh, but yeah, definitely enjoying the change of weather. It was pretty hot here the last time we recorded. and in between true, yeah. Recording sessions, funny, yeah. I was on vacation in Italy for about 10 days where it was even hotter. So oh, it's yeah. nice to have this weather, but there is some pretty cool stuff that we saw in Italy that I want to mention on the podcast, Mm -hmm. specifically related to Fantascienza, and that if you are ever in Rome, you really need to check out the bookstore Pocket Duamila or Pocket 2000, because it's this really cool hole-in-the-wall place that has all kinds of neat sci-fi, fantasy, horror-related stuff. I saw several original issues of Diabolic on the walls, which you could buy for more money than I wanted to spend. But yeah. I did pick up three titles of sixties and seventies Italian language science fiction, namely Gilda Musa and her short story an anthology Festa Sul Asteroide, or Party on the Asteroid. Mm-hmm. I also got novels by Remo Guerreri, Peldombra, Shadow Skin, and Sandro Sandrelli's Caino Dello Spazio, or Cain from Space. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if we're going to get a chance to do either of the novels on the podcast. They're like a little longer than the stuff we normally cover in English and mm-hmm. haven't been translated. But the Gilda Musa stuff, some of the short stories in there are pretty short and seemed acclaimed from Italian critics.
1: Yeah, I'd like, I'd definitely be curious about that. I mean, I yeah. always wanted to check out authors through their short stories first. So yeah, mm-hmm. and it's such a good format for many of these. I mean, both horror and science fiction, I think. For different reasons, maybe a little bit. For horror, it's more like the atmosphere is unbroken. And for science fiction, sometimes it's just, well, you want to express a a concept and you want to do it in the most clear, concise way possible. And you don't necessarily have like this big epic story with tons of characters and stuff. You just want to talk about this cool thing. And it's just a perfect use for a short story.
0: Yeah, she's been dead since 1999. So if we do one or two short stories, we'll just claim fair use. On the Mm -hmm. blogspot, so hopefully you you guys can read those in English too. But yeah, uh, yeah, none of them has been translated into English so far, which is kind of interesting because they're not like 19th century obscurities or whatever. They're from the 60s and 70s and seem to be fairly prolific authors and well acclaimed. But I guess as we saw as Pestrianero, even some Mm -hmm. of the more critically acclaimed authors don't really get their due in the English speaking world.
2: Yeah, no. I was thinking about that recording that we did that episode and like how it would be cool to cover more Italian science fiction after realizing from that that episode that I really don't know that much about it. So, it would be cool to look into that.
1: No, and we really only scratched the surface in our episode back there and like I mentioned a few names, but mostly mm-hmm. I didn't mention them because they didn't really mean anything to me and there were actually a lot of them.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And my Italian certainly improved since we did the Pestrinero translation process. So I'd imagine it would go a little quicker, though that one went pretty easily, I would say, for the translation and, you know, time goes. But yeah, I managed to fumble my way through some conversations with the bookstore clerk, and he was definitely familiar with Ultra Il Cielo and Urania. So he definitely knows his stuff about the genre. And speaking of Urania, the other place in Rome that I want to mention is a bookstore-slash-museum called Profondo Rosso, or Deep Red, and if you are thinking of the Dario Argento film of the title, you're only kind of half right in that he does have some props and various things from the films in the museum in the basement. The store is half-owned by a Luigi Cosi, who is a completely different Italian horror movie director who did films like Contamination among others but
1: but he also did a really good giallo early on known in english as the killer must kill again
0: yeah right
1: (laughs) it's a bit sleazy but it's awesome it's actually one of my favorite weird giallo like it's not supernatural but it's got some really neat twists to it Mm
3: -hmm. that
1: make it stand out in my opinion
0: yeah he also did some other i guess rather silly looking science fiction films and a lot of the posters were all around star crash yeah, that that was the exact one. There's a lot of Star Crash merchandise. So Star Crash
1: is actually the first Italian genre film I ever watched. Nice. <laughs> uh, I had no idea it was Italian. I thought there was something weird about it, just in the way everybody was speaking. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's kind of a Star Wars knockoff. But um, according to the original storyboard, it didn't start out that way. It was actually the producers that wanted to push them to be more like, like Star Wars. So
3: it's kind of interesting.
0: I guess of direct interest to the podcast and science fiction literature history and all that cozy has written a number of, I'm not sure if they're self-published books or just like on a small print run or whatever, but there is at least I think a five volume history of Urania, the magazine, at least that's what it implied from the title. I don't know if it's just focusing on the magazine or Italian science fiction in general with Urania being like one of the major players. They're all in Italian language. But they're available from the bookstore's website, and they had tons and tons of copies of each when I was there, so it's not like they're running out anytime soon. But if you're, I guess, interested in getting into the weeds on this stuff, some of the illustrations and photos and magazine covers in particular were pretty cool, just flipping through the books, seeing translated versions of Astounding, Amazing, and Galaxy in particular was pretty interesting. Yeah, they really seem
1: to like Galaxy magazine, according to what I was reading about and stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. But I also saw a bunch of in both bookstores Italian translations of weird tale stuff. Cool. So yeah, mm. a, lot, a lot of neat stuff there to find for fantascienza in Rome.
1: Yeah, I kind of wish I'd known more about this stuff when my dad and my stepmother were always going to Italy when I was a, little, a bit younger. But I of He always asked, asked me, "Do you want me to bring anything back?" And <laughs> I'd be like, "Well, there's this obscure metal." album but of course he couldn't find it
0: like right right you know so <laughs> yeah so yeah that's what i've been up to what have you guys been reading for non-podcast stuff question now you said you weren't reading too too much but yeah. Anything you guys want to highlight? Well,
2: probably would uh, as I have been reading uh mostly theory that isn't too interesting to hear about, perhaps, <laughs> I guess. Besides that, I have been reading recently Chalky by John Wyndham. I'm almost finished with it, and it's the fourth book I've read by Wyndham so far. Mm-hmm. I've read Midwich Cuckoo's uh, Chrysalids and Day of the Triffids. This is the fourth time I've been experiencing him. And I, I think it's a pretty good novel so far. I believe it's his last before he died. And I would definitely be interested in looking at him at some point on the podcast.
1: Yeah, I definitely have some of his titles on the list. I remember writing down specifically The Trouble with Lycan because it's supposed to be a fairly early example of a competent woman scientist in science fiction. <laughs> and there's also... The Crock and Wakes, I think I've written down. I basically wrote yeah. down a couple of the lesser-known titles because I didn't really want to do Day of the Treffids again because, yeah. I don't know, everybody talks about that one. <laughs> it's actually not my favorite, so. Yeah,
2: I was about to say <laughs> that's probably my my least favorite of the ones I've read. <laughs> I enjoy uh, Midwitch Cuckoos and Chrysalids more, and so far, Chalky as well. Yeah. Besides that, it's the third time I've started reading Zelazny's Night in the Lonesome October, which has become a sort of tradition to read it
1: yes. every
2: October. Nice. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really great book. I I just really love the way Zelazny focuses on all these different horror icons. And every time I reread it, I come across like references I didn't catch the first time. So it's a really, a really neat read.
0: Yeah, that's a hallmark of a great book, is something that you can get a different thing out of each time you read it. Both authors I definitely would like to cover on the podcast at some point.
1: Yeah, Zelazny for sure. I mean, probably not that book unless we want to do a October bonus episode at some point, but like.
2: Some later Halloween special.
1: Yeah, it's not out of the (laughs) question for sure. He's got a lot of, of good science fiction. Definitely been thinking about what Rose for Ecclesiastes and Lord of Light and a couple of other. books that he made that are just really awesome that we could do on the podcast yeah night in the lonesome october is something both gretchen and i discovered a couple years ago and it's it's this really unusual very heartwarming love letter to the horror genre that i i think we might have mentioned on the podcast last year i can't remember yeah yeah it's just a really it's actually kind of an interesting connection with this episode in that it's almost like fanwag but in a cool way, you yeah. know, it's like, yeah. it's like, if you're a fan, you will get this book and you probably won't hate it because it's just like, a lot of the time that kind of stuff is is too self-referential and I, I kind of get annoyed. <laughs> it's like, oh, if you've seen this movie, you get what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, you know, it's, just, it's just really annoying to read.
0: We're not going to be covering Ready Player One on the podcast, so the rest, <laughs> yeah. rest easy, everybody. <laughs>
1: but Zelazny just does it so well and he's so like, obviously passionate about this stuff but he also has his own style and his own like way of really wittily delivering dialogue and like the point of view characters are really interesting because it's like a dog who's a familiar of jack the ripper and you know he's like basically gets to walk around with jack while he does all this stuff but he's also like a mathematician kind of and he has to calculate where the gateway is going to open to let extra-dimensional elder beings in and this whole idea of the two opposing forces, the ones who want to open the gate at the end of October, and the ones who want to keep the gate closed because the lake, the way the world is now, and they don't necessarily want to allow the Lovecraftian elder beings into the universe. And yes. part of the mystery is having to guess who's on what side, because that's what Snuff, the dog protagonist, has to kind of guess. <laughs> and.
2: Yeah, and I really like throughout the the novel, it, it sort of kind of drops you right into it. So you get the plot throughout and the world built throughout, which is pretty mm. cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's so much fun. And there's some pretty good illustrations, I guess, too, that mm-hmm. fun to look at. But I've been reading another cool October thing. and I've actually been really getting into the short stories of R. Chetwin Hayes. And he's a British writer. Who I guess had his moment of popularity in mostly the 70s. He seems to be pretty much forgotten now, and I discovered him because of the stories in the Amicus anthologies, from the Grave, and the Monster Club, are based on his stories, and I'm really, really enjoying them. Like they're really original. Kind of they they like, he likes to make use of the sort of some of the traditional horror tropes and monsters, but he does it in a really interesting novel way and the writing is good the monsters are usually kind of sympathetic sometimes they're up to no good but you're kind of on their side a lot of the time and i think that's kind of cool and some of the creatures he pulls up aren't what you would expect like he has this really cool story called lord Dunwilliam and the coon Anwen, which is about a welsh legend of hellhound like creatures and uh, there's vampires, there's gorgons in one story, there's a sentient house that likes to eat people. There's all kinds of really cool stuff. And it's great. I'm, I'm loving this collected stories of R. Chedwin Hayes, basically, finally arranged in chronological order from like the mid 60s to the mid or late 80s. And yeah, it's just great October reading. Really, really, really good stories.
0: Yeah, I've been reading a couple of very, I guess, non october things uh, (laughs) since last time. Mm -hmm. I actually have done some non-audiobook reading for the first time in a while, a podcast. I finish up the first anthology of Conan stories, The Coming of Conan the Cimmerian, which is just a lot of fun and just like totally awesome stuff. Really well put together anthologies with tons of neat bonus material in the forms of Unfinished summaries and drafts and initial versions, as well as like maps and appendices of various places and Howard's notes on the world and stuff like that. So, yeah, definitely really well put together edition there. I love a lot of those stories. Yeah, they're a lot of fun.
1: Tower of the Elephant and Rogues in the House probably being
0: my two favorite ones. Yeah.
1: Tower of the Elephant is even kind of a science fiction story.
0: There's definitely elements in a couple for sure. Yeah, maybe that's something that we can bring on a bonus episode at some point, because Uh Howard was definitely very much a weird tale celebrity, as I think we'll see in maybe this episode. I think very much adorned by the same people who are reading Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and, you know, just only a hop, skip and a jump away from. I think
1: the big difference with Howard, though, is that he's very much a pulp adventure writer. Oh, yeah. Even even when he's writing a horror story. It kind of follows the adventure pattern uh, more does, so yeah. than yeah. more so than Lovecraft or Smith. It's really you know about people having to overcome monsters and sorcery and stuff, often with the strength of their their muscles, <laughs> uh, well, but not always. You know, sometimes Howard does surprise you a little bit at times with some very melancholic, moving pieces of writing. But
0: yeah, he's a good writer, and he
1: yeah. I mean, there's also some unfortunate stuff like that. Anthology includes the undeniably worst Conan story, The Veil of Lost Women. Yeah. (laughs) But, I don't know. Poor guy. You know, he's like 30 years old when he blew his head off and never traveled anywhere. Yeah. You know, it's this really, really poor Texas town. I don't know. I I, I kind of, I I feel sorry for him almost. I feel like he would have outgrown some of that stuff probably if he actually had a chance to live a little longer and see see a bit of
0: the places that he liked to write about so much.
3: Yeah.
1: Because
0: yeah, he wrote a lot of
1: historical fiction too, but...
0: Yeah, e- even you know, the imperfections was, in some of those stories aren't nearly as bad as some of the other stuff we've even looked at on the podcast. Yeah. So the other thing that I read non-audiobook is kind of related to stuff that we've done on the podcast in that it is the play Cyrano de Bergerac by <laughs> Edmund <laughs> oh, Rostand. Yeah and the play's probably more well known than bergerac's works than
1: bergerac uh, himself yeah. Right, yeah
0: yeah but it's a really fun play fast moving and there's tons of witty dialogue from bergerac the character and there's even some pretty subtle references to his moonvoid stories so i thought that was kind of neat
1: and there's quite a bit of dueling there. oh yeah yeah <laughs>
0: yeah in, in the first act in particular it kind of it's in this like chaotic theater scene where All kinds of stuff is going on, and and he's just like a loud mouth insulting everybody with these really witty and cutting remarks. Um, Mm -hmm. Pretty entertaining. Definitely wouldn't mind seeing a performance of it someday. Mm. Audiobook stuff, I've been doing, again, rereads like I normally do with audiobooks. I did D.H. Lawrence's The Rainbow. Mm -hmm. Um, I've read most of D.H. Lawrence's major works. I've read The Rainbow, Women in Love, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and uh sons and sons and, lovers?
2: sons and lovers sons
0: and lovers yeah yeah i think the mm-hmm. rainbow is my favorite out of all those but i don't know, on this reread i didn't like it as much nearly as i did when i first read it, it, it it's really disjointed in that it does feel like four or five different short stories kind of pasted together but there are some really nice pro sections in it the I guess main issue with D.H. Lawrence is that he has a lot of sexual hang-ups, and he really yeah. is eager to tell you all about them, which, I don't know, makes some parts <laughs> of it. Which got novel. him into
1: some trouble and, you know, kind of makes him stand out from some of his fellows, I guess. But, definitely, yeah. You know, I mean, he's a,
0: definitely one of the first authors to write in about English. it in that fashion. Yeah, in, in English, that's right, yeah.
1: No, you know, I mean, across the channel, those those evil, subversive French people were doing it like a hundred years yeah.
0: before, but you know, <laughs> the decadence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I generally overall, I, I like it. I didn't really care for women in love. It's probably my least favorite out of the ones that I've hmm. read, but that one seems to be more acclaimed than the rainbow for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know. I'm not really in any rush to revisit that one. But after that, I did Thomas Hardy's test of the Derbyvilles, which hmm. I don't know. Again, I really liked oh, yeah. when I first read it, but I just wasn't into it at all. This really? time when I reread it, it's, I don't know, Thomas Hardy writes all these like doomed love triangle tragedy stories and I guess yeah. knowing the plot and how it's going to go, it just really felt like a miserable slog kind of getting through it. Like I don't know, his prose is fine, I guess, but some of the tragic moments just felt like so over the top ridiculous that they were kind of unintentionally funny in what places. What they would call
1: misery porn yeah,
0: nowadays. Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I know that Jude the Obscure is often called that. Are, are the rest of his works very similar in that Yeah, sense? Jude
0: is definitely, and I've read <laughs> yeah. five of his works, so I've read those two: Jude the Obscure, Tess, as mm-hmm. well as Mayor of Caster Bridge, Return of the Native, and Far From the Madding Crowd. And mm-hmm. I don't know, they they all have their moments of that. I've I'm probably not yeah. going to revisit or do any more Hardy. I, I just wasn't really into it. And since Tess mm-hmm. was the one that I thought was the best out of those to begin with, I think huh. I might be done with him. But
1: I really liked Tess when I read it, too. But I don't know. Yeah, I actually did think about recently how I would feel now. Uh, there's this person on YouTube. Her name is Jennifer Brooks. And she's one of the few people that actually, I guess they call it the booktube community. But she's one of the few people that mostly discusses classics. Yeah. And, like, not only 19th century stuff, but older stuff as well. She's really into Renaissance period stuff. <laughs> and she was talking about some of her least favorite Victorian novels recently. And she mentioned, I think it was Jude the Obscure. And she <laughs> talked about a bunch of other Thomas Hardy as well. And Tess came up, and I remember thinking how much I liked that one yeah. originally. And, and then I kind of thought, but now, now that I'm not... 19 anymore, I wonder if I would really like it as much, just yeah. like, you know I just, I don't know, I just kind of thought about maybe I would like to revisit it someday, but but I do remember it being like, just crushingly downbeat you know, yeah, like
0: it, it is, it, it definitely is, there's a couple moments of levity at some parts, there's one scene in particular that reminds me of a scene from Napoleon Dynamite, where the cow wanders <laughs> into the onion patch but, yeah, aside from that it's just kind of i don't know it it was tough going i thought Mm. hardy is probably at the bottom of the pile for my victorians but Mm. i don't know he's not bad it's just i I like pretty much everybody else better from that whole scene
2: i haven't read either hardy or lawrence although i remember that a professor uh, at my university actually did a course a few semesters ago on both of them at the same time so it's interesting that you were reading them also yeah. around the same time.
0: Yeah, they definitely both clog up the thrift stores a lot with the the books. I guess Hardy's interesting in that Wessex is one of those shared world universe type novels where I I don't know if the characters pop up, but certainly the place names do from novel yeah, to novel. Yeah, he
1: he actually created a made up like a, a made up county in England, yeah, mm-hmm. right? Wessex, and yeah. that's like where most of the stories take place, and it's yeah. like. It's kind of thing that if you're not actually familiar with English counties, you might be like, oh, that's a real place, right? But, <laughs> yeah, uh... <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think
0: Lawrence overall is definitely a better pro stylist than Hardy is, but they definitely have some interesting things about them. I don't know. I, I, I liked them more when I initially read them.
1: So to come full circle, he actually has a story featured in the sequel anthology to The Dark Descent, The Foundations of Fear. Okay. Which includes some really good stories, including some that I want to do on the podcast. One by Frederick Pohl, who's going to come up during this episode. Yeah. His story in there is, uh, I think it's called Barbara in the House of Grape or something like that. Hmm. And it looks really interesting. Kind of think, yeah, maybe taking that in would be easier than some of his longer work again, right? Like, maybe the shorter form is better.
0: Yeah. I I think it might be for him because, I mean, he doesn't write the thousand page doorstops that Dickens did, but... Even after like 250 pages, you're like, "All right, enough! I get it already." (laughs) Enough.
1: Yeah, It's just really fascinating to me that in some of these like really cool massive anthologies, you can find writers like Thomas Hardy standing next to Frederick Pohl and Harlan Ellison and stuff like that. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, uh, same with the original Dark Descent. Uh, Henry James next to Henry James King and and all that. But yeah, so after The Hardy, I did Catch-22, which I just finished up for this recording, which is still a lot of fun. There are some unfortunate sexist passages in the Mm. book that don't really age that well, but
3: um, overall it's it's still... That's one that I definitely want to read.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. That's
2: one uh, I actually... I read that back in middle school Uh uh, Uh on my own Uh just because... I read a lot of books that I think I would appreciate a lot more now. And it's been one I've wanted to reread because I recently have been watching the series M.A.S.H. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people kind of compare it with this kind of drama and comedy and the the war satire. So I thought uh, I should probably read it again at some point.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a good entry in that post-war satire of this absurdity of war. I mean, there's there's so Mm -hmm. many entries you could point to uh stalag 17 dr Strangelove, mash you know you you name it but i mean it's a really good entry in that whole genre i think
1: neat yeah let me know if you decide to reread it gretchen because i'd like to read it so (laughs) maybe i'll read it at the same time but gretchen if you if you want to throw in something else i actually i don't know about making this section go on too long but there were a couple of other things i wanted to mention that i've been reading so if you wanted to add something Oh, I'll finish up.
2: Well, I um, besides that, I ended up rereading two different books for one of my classes that I read for the same professor a few semesters ago. He just really likes those books, I, I suppose, which were Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year and Orcs mm. and Crake by Margaret Atwood. I definitely did enjoy both of them a little more than the first time, especially the Defoe. And I, I think maybe reading it alongside some of the theory that we've been reading, I kind of was a little more in tune with some of the ideas of the course, so I did enjoy those, and we also read *Orinoco* by Afra Ben, which I also enjoyed. All three of those works were interesting. Three, the two, uh, it was interesting to revisit. So that that's been uh, kind of the fictional reading I've done, besides you know all of the Foucault and <laughs> people talking about Foucault mostly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I have Orinoco slated sometime soon because it's like a really short book and I figured mm-hmm. it would take a, not that long to get through. But
2: yeah, yeah I haven't read it's the Defoe. Good.
0: we were debating doing that, I think, maybe in the early days of the podcast, just because it mm-hmm. isn't like an early apocalypse type story. Um yeah. but haven't read that particular one. I, I have read Robinson Crusoe and Maul Flanders, mm-hmm. which you know, they're they're pretty cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I've read Robinson Crusoe and Journal of the Plague Year. I haven't read Maul Flanders though.
0: It's one of those ones that has like a paragraph-long title that just tells you the entire plot of the book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the Simsonia chapter titles. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I remember talking about it a little bit in a Journal of the Plague years in my science fiction class, but I don't think we ever <laughs> read it. And I read Robinson Crusoe on my own years before, and I would visit it again someday maybe because I was pretty young. And also Ma Flanders, which... You know, it's it's one of those things. Like, I'm always I'm always there for the beginnings. I'm always in. I'm always ready for what anybody has to say to me. But I think as the book went on, I started to get a little bit tired of it. By the end, it's one of these like I have to repent of all my yeah my mm. dark ways and like being a prostitute is is ungodly and all that and like I don't know. I, I guess maybe I missed the point. I probably did, but I didn't really. I didn't like it that much. <laughs> But it was an interesting read. I mean, it's supposed to, it's considered one of the very first true English novels, I guess. So, yeah. But I didn't read anything quite so literary. I've actually, since we did the last podcast, as well as my usual diet of short stories, I've actually read three novels, all quite short. But the one, I guess, that I'll get out of the way first is my first exposure to the really trashy 70s and 80s writer Guy N. Smith. A British writer, most famous for a series of books about killer crabs. Hmm. <laughs> Night of the Crabs and all its sequels. Nice. This book, though, is called Fiend, and it's just kind of randomly one that I picked. It was published, I believe, in 1988. It's kind of interesting because it's, it takes place entirely in Moscow, in the then still-existent Soviet Union, but it's supposed to be somewhere in the near future. The leader of the soviet dies and the political leaders decide they can't afford him for him to die yet because there's supposed to be this big conference international conference coming up in geneva and he needs to be there he's supposed to be like kind of disarming the rest of the world and making them like russia kind of thing so they decide to press gang this very unwilling occultist character into resurrecting him and bringing him back to life and of course things don't go well and the person that comes back to life in the body of the former leader is not actually him but some terrible tyrannical figure from russian history who i won't mention because it's only revealed by the end of the book i guess it'd be a spoiler it was pretty fun it was really sleazy and over the top there's a lot of really questionable stuff in this book but i kind of enjoyed it up to the end i think the end was very abrupt and it was just kind of like oh, you know, I I did my word count now and I think I'm just going to finish up, like, just kind of just destroy everything in a blaze of glory at the end kind of thing. And, and it was kind of after the book had reached its peak of uncomfortable sleaze factor. And, you know, it was just like, okay, it's time to end it now. And I guess I agreed. So I had fun with it. There were some really creative, crazy things that happened. Person getting turned into a dog and like weird creative ways that this, monstrous bestial undead unstoppable figure had of killing his enemies and stuff like that it was pretty it was pretty creative not great three out of five kind of material i guess but i i I enjoyed it i also read gladiator by philip wiley which is a book from 1930 that is supposed to be a precursor to superman and stuff like that (laughs) i'm not really into comic stuff. I don't like the Marvel universe or the DC universe or anything like that. I I don't, I have no connections with that. So just taking this book on its own terms though, I really enjoyed it a lot. It was way more existential than I guess I expected it to be. I mean like I guess that's kind of a matter of course now you know, now you're supposed to be like, oh your heroes are not that heroic and like you know, you get like the Dark Knight and all that stuff kind of like trying to psychoanalyze Batman and all that and like It's kind of par for the course now, but this guy is basically his father is a mad scientist and he decides to inject his wife with these special hormones that essentially give their son unmatchable strength and he can do anything. Mentally, he's a normal young man, but physically, there's basically nothing he can't accomplish. And you would think that would be like, oh, okay, well, that's your book then, I guess, right? But the whole book is basically him stuck in this really difficult position because he's kind of been brought up with these values that he's supposed to try his best and he's supposed to, like, be accomplished at things in life. And yet he's also not supposed to show how powerful he is because if he does that, he's he's obviously greater than everyone else and nobody will, everybody will be afraid of him and stuff like that. And... He actually does a really good job of, like, uh, he goes into the First World War and he fights in the French Foreign Legion, and he sees a lot of really, really terrible stuff. There's some real punch-the-air scenes where he, like, has to free himself from police custody, and he, like, teaches the police this incredible, <laughs> incredible lesson about how they should be behaving, basically, and it's it's really good. And the end is kind of tragic, you can kind of see that it's going that way. Um, So I wasn't really surprised, but it's, yeah. And I thought it was really effective. It was really good and definitely something that I would say, even though it's not very science fiction, it's definitely enough that, you know, it's something that maybe in the future, one day we consider doing on the podcast because it's, it's pretty effective story and yeah, nothing at all to do with the other gladiator, the Ridley Scott one, but yeah, it's gladiator from 1930. (laughs) And finally, the last one I read, And this was really neat. I read this 1950s French novel by Alain Rob Grillet called Erasers. And it was just kind of this existential, weird take on the detective story. Basically a deconstruction of the detective story. Normally, I would expect a book like this to be very funny and satirical. And while it did have its moments like that, it was actually quite dark. And yeah, it was like this police inspector who's trying to solve a murder that hasn't actually been committed but the police don't know that the murder hasn't actually happened because they can't find the body so so there's a lot of like commentary on bureaucracy and on uh on the stupidity of procedure and stuff like that and there's one really funny character who's always like making wry comments about everything and the police inspector who's kind of a lead character is really bumbling through everything really has no idea what he's doing every time something doesn't go just the way he's expecting it to, he starts getting tongue-tied and stuttering and he can't really get anything out. And like, oh, he's getting distracted. It's, it's, it's like the opposite of what you'd expect from a detective novel, basically.
3: <laughs>
1: and I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was great. I'd love to read more of his stuff. Apparently he's pretty well known in film circles. He co-wrote the film Last Night in Marienbad and mm. also directed a bunch of films of his own. So that's uh, my reading for, for the last little while.
0: All right, cool. Well, I guess before we get into tonight's episode, which if you haven't guessed already, is going to be a little bit looser in format and structure <laughs> yeah. than our normal episodes. But you can find us on Twitter or X or whatever at Chrono SF. And you can also check out our original translations and hard to find stories on our blog spot at chrononautspodcast.blogspot.com, where we have posted a New story of an S. Belsky's Under the Comet, which is a neat apocalypse story. And more will be coming in the future. You can find our episodes on all the major podcast platforms, as well as YouTube, where we post them Uh, shortly after they go up on Spotify and Google and all that stuff. So, for tonight's episode, we are going to be taking a look at early science fiction fandom, early science fiction fanzines, and the fiction that was published in these fanzines. It's kind of an interesting, unique phenomenon that happens here, specifically in America, in Britain, in the 1930s, of the rise of an organized community of fans. Before the 1930s, we had kind of isolated reading groups and clubs here and there, as well as a dedicated Sherlock Holmes fan base. But I think it's pretty easy to say that there was really nothing else in the world quite like what emerged in the 1930s in the form of tons and tons of fanzines, as well as science fiction conventions that people would actually travel across the country to go meet up with other science fiction fans and not just kind of a correspondence reading club. So, A lot of interesting stuff to talk about, and it really sets the model for how the community and fandom operates to this very day. So before we get into the history, why don't we all discuss for a bit our own personal histories of fandom, uh, be it science fiction or something else?
2: My experience with fandom, especially even when I just first started getting into it, was more uh, the fandom centered around specific pieces of media. I'd say that even though I'm, and I, you know, I'm I'm sure some people might not, you know, don't crucify me or anything, but I... I, (laughs) I am not the biggest enjoyer of Star Wars now, but when I was younger, I was really into it and went to, like, a convention for it. And that was probably the first real, like, experience I had with, like, other fans outside of, like, immediate friends and family. Right. And it was after that that I got into Doctor Who and Star Trek. And that's when I started to kind of get into more of the online fan bases I have read some fan fiction. I have a lot of friends who regularly read and write fan fiction as well. And typically, I think that there are a lot of people who still sort of view fan fiction as something that's more related to romance or uh, yep. erotica. Yep. <laughs> and there's definitely a fair share of that. There's a lot of that, but it is a wide array. And I have read quite a bit that I have enjoyed. And. You know, I I know uh, like some people who do write a lot in certain areas for Star Trek and for Man from Uncle as well. So I, I guess as someone who has been born in the two thousands, the early two thousands, I guess the the internet is where I really have experienced most of fandom. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's pretty much been the dominant form of communication since at least the early nineties when I mm-hmm. got into. Fandom, though not science fiction and literary fandom, but more like underground metal fandom as far as Mm -hmm. like talking to people through Usenet and IRC and um, just checking out all the websites there, which turned into tape trading and then getting older issues of fanzines. And then later on in the, I guess, as the Internet age progresses, downloading digital versions of said fanzines when that stuff circulates more through the online sphere. Um, Mm. I didn't really get too much into media and science fiction fandom until a lot later. I got really into Dark Shadows maybe 10 Mm. years ago or so, and really the only people talking about Dark Shadows nowadays are the Dark Shadows fans and fandom, just because the series itself is kind of really overwhelming to anybody but a (laughs) dedicated fan. Uh, Nobody else is going to slog through a thousand episodes of something or just kind of casually watch a show where it's intended to be a endless serial. There's really no plot resolution of any kind and, continuity goes out the window with the whims of the writers uh, Every other i week. did
2: uh want to say i wanted to say that i did uh check it out once i i have heard about uh dark shadows and when you said that you were a fan i looked yeah. it up and i remembered seeing oh well there's one season available and then realizing that there were about 400 500 yeah. episodes yeah. in that one season and thought maybe i'll i'll wait on that a little bit yeah all right
1: I've never watched the show, but I've listened to some of the, a few of the audios, and mm. they are designed so that you can just sort of pick up, like, the. they're designed that you don't have to have watched the TV show to really get into them, I think. Mm. I think they might repeat some key plot points from certain episodes, perhaps, maybe. Uh, I'm not totally sure about that, but I I feel like that might be the case. Like, there's some characters in there that seem to have significance beyond what they appear to in the audios, but like it's still not enough to make you lost really in my experience so far. Anyway,
0: yeah, and they they change continuity all the time. So when you meet the character of Josette, she's a ghost, and the events of how she became a ghost they change like three different times during huh. the course of the series.
3: And yeah,
0: I don't know if they expected the audience just like would it remember or they themselves forgot or or or, or what but
1: i couldn't tell i couldn't tell you exactly do i don't it was a while ago when i listened to them and i don't remember if that yeah. character is present or not yeah. but they do have a lot of the original cast members yeah um, which is cool they yeah now uh some of them have died in the last several years so they've definitely slowed down on the production of uh dark shadows audios but yeah yeah
0: yeah, if you're looking for an introduction to the series, watch the House of Dark Shadows film. They just basically took mm. the most popular arc, the Barnabas story, which in itself is just a knockoff of Dracula, and just made so. that into a, a standalone movie. It kind of gives you all the the vibe and the characters. It feels like a very American version of a hammer horror film. Interesting. Um, yeah, but that, that was kind of my experience in getting into fandom before we've done the podcast, which has certainly been a whole different experience uh, as far as that goes
1: yeah so I actually got a little bit into fandom when I was a child in the late 80s specifically Doctor Who fandom Mm -hmm. I joined what was called the Doctor Who Information Network and it was semi-local there were some chapters in other provinces and states but a lot of it was the the people were kind of in the Ontario area they had a few convention events Nothing too large-scale, but one or two lasted for two days, and that was pretty incredible. I have to say, I'm going to give another shout-out to my dad, who I've mentioned a few times on the podcast already, but he was a real trooper. I couldn't read the magazines, so he read the bi-monthly fan publication, the zine that Dwin put out, which included... Actually, it was really interesting doing this episode because it brought back a lot of that stuff to me. I hadn't thought about it in a long time, but the way the club was run... Definitely seems similar to a way a lot of these 1930s fan groups were operating. And presumably kept operating for several decades. The magazine was a, a mixture of stuff about the show, but also about fan activities in general. And in general, not being a very social kid, it was the first thing that interested me more than the second. And unfortunately, I still find that to be the case reading through some of this stuff was kind of exhausting for me uh not so much the zine excerpts but like the details of their feuds and the, the different things that we'll yeah, get into yeah in a little bit but it was really you know it was interesting i enjoyed the conventions i mean i made a couple of friends from the group that were kind of my own age especially uh starting when we went, went into high school i was hanging out with a couple of local doctor who friends who were also part of the club and that were my age and you know we'd get together at somebody's house on Saturday night and watch Doctor Who till like five in the morning or something like that. Drink lots of soda. (laughs) So yeah, that was kind of it. I mean, you know, I I liked learning about, you know, a, a lot of people were very knowledgeable about the other media that I didn't know so much about, especially the books and stuff like that, because I didn't get to read a lot of those till later. And yeah, I started reading Asimov Science Fiction Magazine, also around that time. And this would have been 1990, probably, 89, 90. And I was a bit too young to be reading some of the stuff in there, for sure. But nevertheless, it was interesting because I took notice of certain things. Like every issue started with an editorial, there was a letters column. And at the end, they would have book reviews and other miscellany. Um, like if the Hugo or Nebula Awards were coming up, they would talk about those. And that was the first time I really became aware that there was actually a science fiction literature community out there. Uh, I'd never been aware that such a thing even existed. So uh, it was quite a revelation, I think. The music fandom I did get into a bit as well, but I think for me it was different by then. The internet was around, and certainly my dad was not going to be reading Slayer <laughs> magazine to me or anything like that. So, <laughs> you know, no so, that yeah, But, you know, I mean, I, I luckily around 1996 there was already quite a lot of um, there was there definitely internet was. resources uh, <laughs> i was then. watching a video on heavy metallurgy uh, recently and marty one of the former editors of uh, metal maniacs from back in the day was saying that seemingly metal uh, like the the internet was something that was embraced by the metal community earlier than a lot of other scenes and they people just really seem to use it as a vehicle to trade and talk about underground bands and stuff like that. So, but I don't know if I, you know, I mean, again, like I felt a little bit detached from it, but not that much because I was, I was kind of obsessed with it for a while there. So it was kind of like, you know, really into finding the obscure black metal bands and stuff like that. And reading really bad scans of old interviews with Beharit and stuff like that. Yeah. So
0: Yeah, yeah. Reading the fanzines for this episode, definitely it was a similar experience to reading some of the fanzines from the 80s, like Slayer magazine or Blackthorn or things like that, where it's like all the big names are here when they're all teenagers. It's like all these people would go in to form important bands or write important novels. But here they are as 14, 15 year old kids um, <laughs> yeah. to talk about how much they love this stuff. And it, it's kind of a really charming and, and fascinating look at the whole. It is. Thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So long as they're not fighting.
0: <laughs> <Running>. <laughs> Which I guess happens a surprising amount and uh, over yeah. very silly reasons.
2: Yeah, even even today, there's <laughs> quite a bit of that I've seen <laughs> in some fandoms. So.
0: Yeah, I was just yeah. looking at a Twitter argument today about <laughs> YA oh, fiction man. and how it's a marketing genre, not a real literary genre, and people were all uh, pissed off and, and all that stuff. So. <laughs> what was that going on now? Yeah. x or twitter or or whatever people always are saying oh, something yeah. on that yeah website. yeah. arguing about stupid yeah. stuff yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I don't really use twitter it, it kind of scares me a bit
0: yeah i, I think we need a better alternative for our mm-hmm. podcast social media no. stuff but i don't really know what that is at this point in time i i don't know blue sky and mastodon are not really quite there yet i guess we'll mm. take a look it's at pretty
1: it. small fry at this point yeah. yeah and i'm not like you know oh, yeah. i mean I'm not necessarily an early adopter for a lot of things, you know, it's just like, there doesn't seem a lot of point,
3: but uh. whatever.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I have spent most of my time on, on Tumblr, which is where I'm able to sort of just curate the stuff that I see. So I don't have to worry about any arguments going on.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe we should start a Tumblr page for the podcast and do that instead of the Twitter.
2: Mm.
0: (laughs) Who knows? Maybe the people there are a little bit more engaging. Certainly uh, a lot of media fandom on Tumblr. That's for Mm -hmm. sure.
1: So what really struck me, though, one of the things that struck me is just how little things seem to have really changed. Yeah. Yeah. And also, a lot of the things we were speculating about, I think some of them, some of our questions got answered. Like, I remember early on, and also while I was reading Brian Aldiss's still excellent Trillion Year Spree. And I think the book is excellent, mostly because of both the somewhat obscure titles it mentions, but also... Aldous is he definitely has a unique point of view and he's very articulate and I enjoy his sense of humor very dry but very British I don't know I like it a lot but I don't agree with him on a lot of things I think at this point and, and that's fine one of the things you know he kind of accuses science fiction fans of attempting to rope in all kinds of stuff that are precursors to the genre and basically saying oh yeah this is we claim this now as yeah. ours. This is science fiction, right, <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah. Well, it seems that back in the early 30s, some of these quite young people were well-read enough to be doing that themselves.
0: Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so why don't we get into that? So we're going to be talking a little bit about the fandom and fan community from 1930 to 1939, specifically using 1939 as a cutoff date as our next episode will be focusing very specifically on one point of time in 1939, namely July, when we're going to be taking a look at an issue of Astounding Stories. But it also coincidentally happens to be the same month that the first Worldcon was held. So we're going to kind of end it on one of the major events in fandom history. I guess the questions of what is fandom or what is fan fiction seem almost as complex and nebulous as the question of what is science fiction, and that as long as there has been storytelling, there have always been instances of people basing their works off of the creations of others, which gets at the heart of Western literature itself if we start digging into the implications of the Homeric question, in that many scholars feel that the two works were written by two different people, perhaps 50 years apart, or Butler thinks the author of The Odyssey was a woman. You know, who knows? Throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, we see biblically inspired works like Dante and Milton. And even getting into the 19th century genre writing with works we've covered on the podcast, we see established authors like Jules Verne finishing up Edgar Allan Poe's The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, or Garrett Services writing his sequel to War of the Worlds, that is Edison's Conquest of Mars. Anne Jameson, in her book, Fick, Why Fanfiction is Taking Over the World, notes several of these fun 19th century anecdotes like George Eliot and William Thackeray both writing Walter Scott fanfiction. In Eliot's case, it was when she was a little girl, she had to return a borrowed book and wrote her own ending before she read the real one. In Thackeray's case, it was because he was dissatisfied with the ending of Ivanhoe, so he wrote his own sequel, Rebecca and Rowena, which is apparently supposed to be pretty satirical and funny like a lot of his other works are.
1: Something I found out a while ago, there was a writer that I was kind of looking at because his name keeps coming up, especially in apocalyptic fiction, but in other stuff too, Sidney Fowler Wright, who is a British writer from the, I guess, early early 20th century, uh, up to the 50s probably, and he actually wrote a lot of science fiction, but he also wrote uh he finished walter scott's book oh shoot i forgot the name uh it's something that he's submitted at the end of his life and the publisher said it was unpublishable so they tried to kind of hide it and he <laughs> basically was one of the people who was lucky enough to read the manuscript and i guess he did a version of it that's finished and he's actually written a, a pretty comprehensive bio on walter scott as well so funny how his name keeps coming up it came up a lot in the uh, twain episode yeah. too.
0: It's really influential in a lot of ways. But regarding the fan fiction and the, I guess, transition from isolated incidents and cases like this into more of a movement is that Jameson notes that this stuff really takes off with Sherlock Holmes, especially after Doyle kills the character of Holmes off. As people want to read more Sherlock Holmes stories, and if Sherlock Holmes is dead, well, people can't really do that. Established magazines like Punch published a number of stories under the title The Adventures of Picklock Holes. Presumably a humorous take on the character. I haven't read any of those, but it does sound ridiculous. And we can
1: also read about The Adventures of his friend Sir Goodlock Homer.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But when all these kinds of stories were published, if they were published, they were published in professionally produced books or magazines. From what I can tell, there wasn't really much that resembled fanzines prior to the 1930s. That is, magazines independently produced by fans and for fans. Jameson does note one adorable newspaper that the Brontes circulated amongst their family, but something where only one or two copies is produced, I think, is a different scale than an independent publication that is circulating to a few dozen or hundred people. I tried to follow up on some pre-1930s leads. There's certainly publications before 1930 that sound like they could be fanzines from their titles. The biggest one is Lovecraft and publishing in the Homebrew Journal, but from what I can tell, that one and a couple of the other ones I looked at were all professionally published magazines. So what happens in the 1930s that sees the appearance of these dozens of fanzines? I do want to trace... Briefly, a few factors leading up to that point. So the first obvious one is the increasing proliferance of pulp magazines themselves from the stuff like the Muncie Pulps that would publish genre fiction broadly construed to the launch of Amazing in 1926 that was specifically focused on scientific fiction. The increasing publication of these kinds of stories in various magazines led to the establishment of reading clubs and collectors. So I want to read this one piece from the Terrestrial Fantascience Guild Bulletin, which was published in May 1935, edited by an E.E. Evert, and Evert is the writer of this piece. So he says, Come this September 6th, 26 years ago, which is 1909 for the modern podcast listener, a young fellow had an idea. Nothing unusual in itself, but it spelled the formation of the grandfather of the present TFG. The name of this young fellow was Arnold Evert, the father of our present editor. Mr. Evert, with three of his friends, had long hogged a few impossible stories that appeared in the old Argosy and All Story of those days. It had been hard, for money was scarce. So with these three friends, he set out to organize the Impossible Story Guild. Main purpose? To pool all money for buying magazines and books. Things progressed. The library grew. New members appeared. Until In 1914, the membership read 31, and these came from all over the world. England contributed one, NEP North, Italy one, even Nipolis, who moved to the U.S. after the war, and Canada, one B. Murdoch, deceased. All these youngsters ranged around 20 years of age when the U.S. entered the war. Many went. And through all this trying time, correspondence was kept up. Friends were made overseas. North became a captain, and three members were killed. The war ended, the remainder returned to take up the old treads, which had almost been broken. In 1920, the membership numbered 40. A regular and very large correspondence was kept up concerning the magazines as well as general scientific subjects. Most of the members were then mature adults, but some of the younger fellows began to creep in. It was in 1926, with the appearance that the ISG made a definite reorganization. A convention was held and it was moved and passed that now as there was something definite to work on that the club should be reorganized. The original members were all gone, leaving the club still at 40. But these 40 had families and jobs and live work to do, so it was then that the club came into present hands. Mr. Shepard, Mr. Evert, Mr. Woe, Mr. Sabin, Mr. Nephilus, as well as Mr. Wolheim. In 1928 came the change of the name to International Science Fiction Guild. For a while, we were satisfied with our organization as it stood, but about a year ago, we decided to do it right. In this little over a year, the Guild has grown as nothing else ever has. Our membership reaches around the world, and not a name only. Correspondence is regular, and the membership list increased with the same regularly. The bulletin was started and grew with the Guild. Reorganization was again made to fit our needs. Issues were brought to a point, and all in all, the TFG has done lots. But this is only the beginning. We are only finding ourselves. As for the future, who knows? It is very bright. So presumably readership clubs like this sprung up in various places, and while the Impossible Story Guild early on was largely U.S. focused, it did have some international members. This zine in particular was published in Alabama, but as mentioned, a Mr. Wolheim, much more on him in a bit, was a leading figure by the 1920s who was based out of New York. The third piece I briefly want to focus on is the technological angle. These scenes were primarily mimeographed and hectographed, and while the technology for both dates back to the 1800s, by the 1930s they became widely used in various circumstances for production of small-run newsletters. Hectographing is the process of creating an inked jelly-like master, basically a pan of gelatin that you press a piece of paper onto, whereas mimeographing is an actual machine that pushes ink through a stencil. Both of these techniques would fall out of favor by the 1960s when photocopying comes into the picture, but in the 1930s, they were the dominant method of production. Hectographing would produce much smaller runs and in lower quality, often leading to the smudging of inks, which sometimes makes reading them in 2023 a bit of a challenge.
1: Yeah, so a lot of this stuff you can you can get
0: now by oh, the yes. reading it, yeah. but
1: it doesn't look pristine, I suppose, you
0: know. No, not always. <laughs> but... Yeah, there's a massive, massive fanzine archive of this stuff dating back to 1930 and going up to the present on the Fan History Project website, which at the time I wrote the script, boasted of 21,483 issues consisting of over 380,000 pages. We will post a link to the chronological list of fanzines in the episode description here, so you can check it out for yourself. But this stuff is absolutely fantastic to dig through.
1: Quite a historical archive.
0: It really is, and it's just really a snapshot in time in a way that I guess is even more so in some ways than the stories themselves.
1: Right, and I mean, you know, I remember commenting on this when we were doing the amazing episode about exactly a year ago, and we were looking at the letters, and I remember just being way more taken than I was expecting by the letter section. Now, (laughs) to be honest, like, yeah, they probably picked like, they probably didn't print everything, you know, they probably just picked letters that they thought would be good to print for one reason or another, right? So, I don't know, like, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, like, the quality in the professional magazines was necessarily always the best, but I definitely was, was, I guess, really struck by that, because you were seeing things like our authors contributing, and, like, people like, like, Jack Williamson, who apparently wrote a lot of letters. He doesn't really come up too much in this. His name is mentioned a few times. It seems his involvement in fandom in the early days was kind of sporadic, but he does talk about a lot of this stuff in his biography a little bit as well. So,
0: Yeah, and it's incredible the amount of documentation there is for this stuff. In yeah. addition to the fanzine archive, there's also a fancyclopedia website, which documents all this early fan activity, and it's a really stark difference between areas like this and some of the more obscure pockets of authors and groups where we're just kind of guessing at their activities and feelings with the stuff but yeah the things that we're talking about tonight there is a huge huge amount of primary materials online in fact probably too much to reasonably list and discuss here in a single podcast episode so we really recommend that you browse both these websites because it really is a fascinating time sink. So fan club newsletters like The Comet and The Planet start to appear in early 1930, but in Hints on Collecting Science Fiction by Robert Madel, an article in the Science Fiction Fan number 4 from October of 1936, he attributes The Time Traveler as the first real fan magazine, which Jack Spear, in his 1939 history of fandom, up to now agrees with. The Spear is considered by some to be the first history of science fiction fandom. Following a few years later would be the initial installments of Sam Moskowitz's ridiculously in-depth history of this era called The Immortal Storm, a history of science fiction fandom. Moskowitz also agrees that The Time Traveler is the first real fanzine, so I guess we can consider that a universal consensus. Despite the fact that just now I said that the Fanzine Archive has 21,483 issues on it, only one issue of the Time Traveler is posted, so despite the fact that the website itself is an enormous archive, it's still just a piece of the puzzle, and many of those pieces appear to be still rare and undigitized. But the issue we do have is number two from February of 1932, and we see that the editors are Alan Glazier, Julius Schwartz, Mortimer Wessinger, and Forrest J. Ackerman, who would all basically go on to have lifelong careers in science fiction, either as writers or industry people. Some of these people were involved with an earlier fan club newsletter called The Planet, and some of the same content from The Planet gets recycled into The Time Traveler. So I'm obviously not going to go over every single zine that existed between 1930 and 1939, as there are dozens, but I briefly want to run down this issue of The Time Traveler. So in issue number two of The Time Traveler, a mimeograph zine, you get a bit of that recycled content from the planet, but it's pretty cool recycled content, talking about how far technology has come since the days of Jules Verne, and how those stories are now commonplace events, but what about the future of science fiction, and how awesome is that going to be? We also get an update on new scientifilms so if you were ever looking for a worse word than fiction, here is a suggested candidate for you yeah
1: <laughs> i did start to get the feeling very early on that they were just sort of having fun with it and just like paying tribute to hugo maybe a little bit yeah. <laughs> they didn't really take it that seriously using these silly words like they do they sounded silly but it's kind of one of those things that fans do, where they kind of adopt something, even though they know it's goofy and stupid. Yeah, right. It's because like it's fun and it reminds you of somebody. Yeah. So I, I kind of that's kind of the feeling I got with all this this scientific compound <laughs> words that they were using in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the
0: magazine excerpts. Though not everybody liked it, and certainly there's one article later that complains about it quite a bit. But also in this issue are some news from the science fiction magazine world, classified ads. A column that nitpicks the science errors in magazine stories, various trivia. There is a profile on Jack Williamson, some contests, but maybe the most interesting is a piece on the history of science fiction. And unfortunately, this doesn't exist in full form in this issue as it carried over from issue number one, which again is unfortunately not online. But this issue picks up in the Middle Ages and goes through to the Enlightenment, not only mentioning Dante and Da Vinci as precursors, but also talks about. Bergerac and Godwin, which answers the question that I had as is if these works were known to the early science fiction community, and it would appear that they indeed were. One thing, however, this issue of the Time Traveler did not contain is original fiction, something that most of the fanzines in the 1930s would have in large proportions in addition to the types of content that I listed above, though chiefly editorials and news bulletins. The Time Traveler itself was folded into the Science Fiction Digest, which became fantasy magazines. so even the lineage of individual zines itself is as complicated as the professional magazines they were mirroring. And while we'll get into the fiction in a little bit, I think it's important to note that the fiction was being written by two kinds of people. The first being established authors, like Clark Ashton Smith who were likely shuffling off minor works that were rejected by publications like Weird Tales. Yeah, we'll get into that. And the second being teenagers who were publishing these zines themselves, fledgling authors looking to get started. So over the next few minutes, I want to talk about some of those people and who they were and their weird feuds and dramas in getting this whole thing off the ground. And the person whose name comes up by far the most in digging through all these zines is Donald Wolheim who was born in 1914. So he would have been 20 at the time of the Great Staple War of 1934. Wolheim was into Burroughs, Haggard, Verne, and Wells, and he discovered Amazing in 1927. Speer describes him as being contemptuous of younger fans as, quote, He is one of the older generation of fans who turned 21 years in the first fandom or before, So, of course, he knows what he's talking about more than these kids who got into science fiction a couple weeks ago.
1: So, Wolheim seems really smart and really edgy.
0: Yeah, he definitely is that kind of person. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I like him, I think, for the most part.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's definitely an interesting character, for sure. Regarding the first fandom, Spear marks the end of this first era of fandom with the selling of Wonder Stories in 1936, which certainly felt like a huge event to those who were there at the time. Wolheim was a very frequent contributor to numerous fanzines, including serving on the editorial boards of numerous zines. There was a rather humorous dust-up between himself and Bob Tucker. Tucker established the Society for the Prevention of Wire Staples in Science Fiction Magazines in 1934, <laughs> shortly to be followed in opposition by Wolheim's international and allied organizations for the purpose of upholding and maintaining the use of metallic fasteners in science fiction, which published the zine... The polymorph-annucleated leococktite, possibly the best zine title of anything out of this episode, and they all gave themselves ridiculous titles like the Grand yeah. Bully Wag or the High Cocalorum. and it's all a bunch of young people screwing around, but Wolheim's drama heats up a bit in 1935, and as is a running theme through many of these episodes, Wolheim submitted a story to Wonder Stories, which was accepted and printed, but he never got paid for. He didn't take kindly to this, and he put up a really big stink, which caused a great deal of turmoil in the East New York Science Fiction League with Charles D. Hornig, who we previously mentioned was the teenage editor of Wonder Stories, and he was pitted against Wolheim, John B. Mitchell, and Bill Socorro. Wolheim, Mitchell, and Sakura were expelled from the League, and they disrupted future meetings with their antics accounts and reactions all of this played out in the pages of the fanzines at the time including the british ones so the drama even made its way across the atlantic
1: yeah and you can find so many extensive details of all this yeah. mentioned in a particular book <laughs> sam Moskowitz's immortal storm fan yeah. history book <laughs>
3: yeah it's really the amount of detail detailed. gone yeah. into is
1: <laughs> yeah it's very exhaustive
0: yeah <laughs> It's kind of hard to read. I mean, it's good that works like this exist that exhaustively document all of the various details and getting into the weeds of all this stuff. But it really does read like a reference work um, at the time. And certainly nothing yeah. like Sam Moskowitz's big discovery of Edward Page Mitchell. It's definitely not a gripping account at all.
1: Moskowitz seems to have done a lot of good work. Like he was also one of the first people to write extensively and uncover stuff about Hodgson, right? Yeah. And he did that science fiction by Gaslight anthology, which is really good. But the book is just generally drier than I was hoping it would be. Like, it's kind of, even the subtitle of the book kind of promises glorious humor and mayhem. (laughs) But it's actually quite, you know, it's just sort of pedantic and very, I guess, you can't, I can't really fault Moskowitz for it. I mean, he's doing good work, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's not something I would really recommend unless you specifically want to use it as a reference book. Like I think there's probably more fun and amusing accounts of early fandom activities probably written by other people. Yeah,
0: And to be fair, he did start writing it when he was quite young and he did indeed get involved in early fandom when he was quite young. I think he was 15 or so when he first started publishing his, his first fanzine. A lot of these people were really young when they started to, Get together and publish fanzines. And we
2: will have to keep that in mind going yeah, forward. Definitely. I mean, Wolheim was I, one of the older ones. I have to say, reading about this makes me feel like uh, I haven't accomplished too much if these people are already creating fanzines at the age of 15.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's kind of a different world back then. I mean, fandom was just starting to get going and took on a different character. And a lot of these people must have been from upper middle class backgrounds if they're able to afford or have access to mimeograph and hectograph equipment, which presumably wasn't prohibitively expensive, like where only publishers and, I guess, large outfits could afford to have them, but certainly nothing that like everybody could afford to do.
1: But it's also important to keep in mind that a lot of these, I guess, kids, you could say, their ambitions certainly outlived their abilities. Yeah. Yeah, and some, you know, a lot of these themes only lasted for like a couple of issues yeah. that disappeared <laughs> yeah. forever. Yeah. Right. So.
2: Yeah. A couple of the ones that we are covering are, are the shorter lived ones, but there were, it seems quite a few that were pretty successful.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I guess that so. lasted
0: for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they switched hands here and there, but yeah, it's kind of interesting how it plays out especially people like Wolheim, who would uh, do a zine for one issue, then do another zine for an issue, and then just kind of keep bouncing around while still writing articles for other people's zines and, and things like that. Really interesting how the community is very close-knit, and it wasn't in a case of people doing these things in a vacuum publishing to a local audience that were kind of unaware of other things going around. It was very much a very tight-knit community. Everybody seemed to be acutely aware of everybody else. And even though a lot of the activity does seem to be centered around the New York, New Jersey area, we do get zines that pop up pretty much all over the United States as well as the UK. I didn't see anything from Canada, I don't think, in the zines that I took a look at, but it wouldn't surprise me if some stuff popped up there. As yeah, well.
1: I mean, I've never really looked too into specifically Canadian fan activities from back then. I guess that's something that did cross my mind a little bit. Yeah. Certainly, I probably the most famous claim to fame from that time in terms of the science fiction community is that Alfred Van Vogt is from Manitoba somewhere. Right, right. But I think by the, I guess maybe the, well, maybe it wasn't until the 50s, but he moved to Los Angeles, ended up like sort of. Helping Hubbard run his operations for a little while before he kind of fell out of favor with the whole thing and decided it wasn't cool after all. So,
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and um, there's probably a couple of other things that I'm I'm not remembering now. But yeah, like definitely, there seems to be more of a. I mean, it's not much of one, but even more of a scene now than there was back then. Like now, there there might be. I don't know. Canadian science fiction is known as being dystopian i guess i don't know how much of that is because of the influence of like atwood for example who tends to write that way when she does write in that mold
0: but yeah i mean yeah i couldn't find anything else aside from us and uk stuff on the fanzine archive i'm not sure if zines popped up in other countries or languages that aren't english there doesn't seem to be anything written suggesting that that was the case but you never know something may surface at, at some point yeah
1: i mean i would expect I would maybe expect like possibly France would be like mm-hmm. but even then i mean it seems like but it seems like they had like in you know a couple of the resources we have on the european history of science fiction i would say the vast majority of his french works and, and yeah. yeah again like there's probably one central figure sort of responsible for setting that off, that being Fern, right? Yeah. But yeah. Like after that, there's so many writers that want it. A couple of things that mention so many works and authors that I never heard of it, don't know anything about. And <laughs> a lot of them are translated by Brian
0: Stableford. Yes, it. he's done a huge amount of work the... and it's in the last 10 years, especially like a, the amount of stuff he's translated is just ridiculous, but... Yeah,
1: but I don't know about actual magazines or fan stuff. And I think the British... We'll get to that when you're ready, Nate, but I think the British guys talk about that a bit. They talk about why there are no magazines, like no professional magazines, as opposed to fan magazines, in Britain at this time. And so the main goal of the British fans is to make it so that there is one.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that pretty much all the British conversations in their fanzines are focused around the same American science fiction pulp magazines. Yeah,
1: and they're so much more polite than their American counterparts. (laughs) They're
0: so fitting the stereotype.
2: Yeah, Yeah. not as much drama going on.
0: No, they have to report on the American drama.
2: Yeah.
1: We might fight, but we're not going to talk about it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: They report on the American drama, like how YouTube channels will report on drama they're not involved with now.
0: Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. interesting stuff,
2: sure.
0: definitely. And it seems like the British would follow the American model in terms of both the fanzines, the pulp magazines themselves, as well as the conventions. So Wolheim, Mitchell, and Sakura, the three expelled members, would be instrumental in establishing what is Almost universally considered to be the first science fiction convention, that is, the first Eastern Science Fiction Convention that was held in Philadelphia on October 2nd of 1936. And there's a great picture of it on FanCyclopedia, which we'll link in the episode description, but I just want to read the caption of the photograph. So it says: The majority of the attendees of the world's first science fiction convention from left. Oswald Train, Donald A. Wolheim, Milton A. Rothman, Frederick Pohl. John B. Mitchell, William S. Sikora, holding the NYBISA flag, David A. Kyle, and Robert Madel. They're standing in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Not pictured, Herbert E. Goodkit, who took the photograph, and John V. Baltadonis, who had not arrived in time the picture was taken. So, the first science fiction convention was like a dozen people, just a bunch of kids hanging out in Philadelphia. It was kind of a... Massive difference in scope and scale than something like Worldcon today. Frederick Pohl would have been 16 at the time of this photograph, and would later go on to be an incredibly well-acclaimed science fiction author and editor, but this time he was not only involved in the science fiction fanzine circuit, but radical politics. While Wolheim was seen as kind of the leader of this crew, it seems like Pohl got them all into communism, Paul himself running a radical politics zine called The Flatbush Artery, which published its first issue on January of 1938. Wolheim was Jewish and had a personal hatred towards the Nazis and fascism, and this adoption of communism certainly put them at odds with some of the others in the science fiction community. Especially John Campbell. Yes, especially John Campbell. Yes. (laughs) But Wolheim was instrumental in the establishment of the fantasy Amateur Press Association, and served as interim president at the time of the adoption of the group's constitution in May of 1937. Wolheim and his crew would put on conventions for the rest of the 1930s, and the fandom expanded to the point where conventions separate from him sprung up. One of the people that is another important figure in this whole saga is Sam Moskowitz, who published the first issue of his zine, Helios in June of 1937. Before this episode, Moskowitz is one of the most invoked names on the podcast, as he was Mm -hmm. later a prominent science fiction critic and author, perhaps from our standpoint, the most significant of which is the rediscovery of Edward Page Mitchell, who we've, of course, covered on the podcast numerous times, and we (laughs) really enjoy his stuff. But he was also not above getting in his own little feuds, and he was in particular at odds with Wolheim and... set up his own conventions in Newark. From what I can tell, these feuds stem from petty disputes over convention reporting, and personally I think it would be agonizing and totally off-putting dealing with this kind of stuff and these personalities, but I guess that's that's the nature of (laughs) fandom. (laughs) But by 1939, conventions were being held in the UK as well, and by this time, Spear notes that the rising popularity of fan fiction, that is Fiction in which the principal characters are fans, either synthetic type characters or actual personages. Cosmic Tales under Kuslan was foremost in this, and Mickey also calls to mind another exception in the main current. In addition to the publications already mentioned, Moskowitz cites the Fantasy Fan, the Fantasy Magazine, and Fantasy News as being the most important fan publications So that kind of briefly brings us up to 1939, and if you want some more information, definitely check out these Spear and Moskowitz books. Uh, As we've mentioned, the Moskowitz is incredibly, incredibly detailed and contains tons of photographs. It's, you know, maybe not the most captivating and thrilling read, but it is extremely detailed and contains a lot, a lot of information.
1: More than I wanted to know, I think, (laughs) but I'm really glad somebody was documenting this stuff so yeah. thoroughly. And I, I do think, like, <laughs> it is an interesting contrast, too, to, like, some of the music stuff, right? Where it does seem like their approach is a little bit less. I don't know. Like, there's 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 a real effort among the science fiction fan community to be organized and be, like, kind of a coherent movement, almost. And it feels like idealism, you know? It feels like something that punks definitely don't have. Yeah, right. right. So... <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. It's really interesting to, to see all that, I think. It definitely is.
0: Yeah. and It's just, I, I guess, also somewhat unique in that it differs from other areas of science fiction we've looked at, like the Latin American stuff or the Soviet stuff, where there is this huge amount of primary documentation there. Mm-hmm. So all the questions that kind of pop up when we're doing the research, well, they're answered in excruciating detail by some of these reference works so yeah it's good that the stuff is there and it's again all online if you want to dig into it but July 1939 is like we've mentioned not only the issue of Astounding we'll be focusing on next month but also when the first Worldcon was held of which Moskowitz was instrumental in establishing and of course is still being held today and I guess we could consider it's the main convention for science fiction literature and that the Hugo Awards are presented there. And so the Hugo Awards of 2023 is the 81st World Mm. Science Fiction Convention. So yeah, quite a long running and successful convention, of course. But this first one was also rife with drama with Wolheim and Moskowitz. (laughs) Moskowitz (laughs) denied entry to him, Frederick Pohl, Mitchell, as well as Robert A. Lowndes, Cyril Cornbluth, and Jack Gillespie. So a lot of feuds with a lot of people, uh, probably over for really petty teenager reasons. Yeah.
1: And they're all mostly all, yeah, men from a certain area of a certain age. Um, yeah. I think Moskowitz does mention one black fan early on. Yeah. It's kind of, he doesn't really go into it very much. Apparently he was a rocket enthusiast and people were meeting at his house and stuff like that.
0: Yeah yeah it, it definitely seems like most of the people that were into this were definitely not a diverse bunch <laughs> mostly yeah. young white almost no women and I think yeah. that was the only non-white person that is mentioned in the early fandom history
1: but you gotta wonder too with which some of the kind of personalities that were involved like if women had kind of really been interested in hanging out with them maybe some of them would have women like nah that's okay
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I couldn't be a science fiction fan without being right. into that
0: yeah yeah. <laughs> it does feel very much like a boys club, though. Um, that does kind of segue into one kind of final addendum and coda to this whole story, is that Wolheim, I guess, is most known now for his bootlegging of Lord of the Rings decades after the events oh, of yeah. this uh, take place. But he also is featured in a recent documentary entitled Casa Susana that features one aspect of his later life from the 1960s, which was previously unknown to this documentary coming out a couple years ago, and that his daughter found out after his death that he spent several years at what was referred to as the time as a cross-dressing club in the Catskills and wrote the book A Year Among the Girls under the pseudonym Daryl Raynor. And the book appears divisive in the transgender community, but Mm -hmm. Wolheim being the author was not known until very recently. The language used in, I guess, Wolheim's book and the documentary is probably different than the language would be used today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wolheim didn't refer to himself using female pronouns. Would he do so differently if he was a teenager in the 2020s versus the 1920s? Uh, That's really impossible to say. But it is a very, I guess, interesting look at his life in that this was pretty much a secret known to nobody in the community until a couple years ago so it's kind of a weird and interesting tangent there
1: yeah he seems to be somebody who likes to provoke people and i kind of wonder if i mean it'd be interesting to read the book i guess that would answer the question (laughs) yeah it just seems like sometimes he just wants to make people feel intimidated almost by his actions and and then the crazy things that he says and stuff because i kind of get that that feeling of that kind of personality
0: yeah and i think one of the criticisms of the book that is a bit sensationalized Mm. but yeah it would be interesting read for sure i mean uh, connections to the science fiction community aside so i guess getting back to the community and the fandom this story again has been primarily american and british moskowitz does mention japanese spanish russian and dutch language magazines that is professionally produced magazines so he was at least vaguely aware of the existence of contemporary international science fiction magazines although as we've seen translations of these stories have been sparse and i know at least for some of the mexican magazines a lot of them printed spanish language translations of the american pulp stuff so we're going to take a look for what spanish language pulp era stuff there is out there i'm not sure how much will turn up but again like with the russian stuff uh, we who, who knows So for the background of this episode, we took a look at a number of fanzines from the 1930s and I pulled a number of excerpts from a wide variety. I mainly pulled stuff that were interesting editorials, either they documented a convention or they were inflammatory in a review or had something of interest to them for the podcast. So I think over the next couple minutes, we're just going to talk about some of those pieces. I had a couple that I wanted to read out. I guess we could all kind of comment as we go along. So a couple things that stuck out to me was one mention in a UK zine, The Futurian, volume number two from June number 1938, and that they do a profile on the writings of George Griffith. And the author says, quote, One has to assume that they were not really good books, because while the contemporary works of H.G. Wells are still famous, Griffith appears to be unknown even to the science fiction fraternity. So I thought that was just kind of interesting how, like, the major writer of scientific romance, before H.G. Wells came along, was a total obscurity, even within the UK, by the... By 1938,
1: yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that those kind of fit in with something that i was kind of thinking of mentioning earlier was that it is interesting to see too how i guess in some ways you can be vindicated and other ways not when you think about how well let's take like the time period for example and the weird tales writers like hp lovecraft yeah everybody knows who he is clark and smith i feel like maybe i don't know maybe it's just that looked into it more but i i feel like maybe he's more popular now than he was like in when i first discovered him in the early 2000s like i think there have been the reprints of his collected fiction and some probably some poetry reprints and stuff like that and and it it's like it seems like maybe he's getting some of the attention he deserves but back then he was really popular too and i'm kind of almost surprised to see like how often his names comes up and that he actually seems to be, have been very well liked. On the other hand, Seabury Quinn, who was very well liked, is almost forgotten now. And he wrote like 90 plus <laughs> occult detective stories about this occult detective in New Jersey with the hilarious French stereotype personality. She was the
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember when we were when looking through some of the Weird Tales stuff and not at the time yeah. not knowing his name and seeing all the stuff that he had written for the oh, magazine. Oh, yeah,
1: they love him, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and Clark Ashton Smith definitely seems to be like the celebrity along with Lovecraft and the mm-hmm. fanzines that lean more towards the Weird Tales angle.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because there was the, in Moskowitz, reading about the Time when I think it was Forrest Ackerman like criticized one of his stories and everyone sort of attacked him and like came to <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> came yeah.
2: to Smith's defense.
0: Forrest Ackerman does not seem to be well liked based on some of these Zine articles and
2: profiles, mm. but he uh
1: he was a pretty accomplished literary agent and yeah. he did create yeah. some things and I think he was even involved with in some movies. He also created the character of Vamparella. Mm. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. Very I, I don't know contribution. M- much about
1: her, but she's a sexy comic vampire chick, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. Kiss. So that,
2: yeah. 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 Yeah, I get I get a comic catalog every month, and I, I've I've come across her before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: but another interesting thing that was from that same issue of the UK Zine is a teaser from John Campbell of what's coming up in Astounding, and he announces both who goes there and the debut of L Ron Hubbard. So two major science fiction events teased in one little article. I thought that was kind of an exclusive
1: Um, write-up for a British magazine. That's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. What else do we have here? There is a lot of science fiction history and bibliography in Mm -hmm. these scenes, which I thought was another interesting piece of the puzzle that, you know, we were kind of speculating about since we started the podcast of, Exactly, how much of this pre-Shelley imaginary traveler type stuff was known to the early science fiction fandom? And it turns out quite a lot. Donald Wolheim wrote an article in the Fantagraph where he talks about a number of texts from the 15 and 1600s. In addition to Moore's Utopia, he mentions the Godwin that we covered. There's Christianopolis by Johann Andre. We covered New Atlantis. He mentioned "City the Sun" by Thomas and Campanella, "Incarnia" by Johannes Bicellius, and a number of these other obscure 1600s titles. Uh, Rather amusing-sounding one is the "Floating Island" by the unfortunately named Richard Head, written in 1673.
1: (laughs) So, do you guys actually think he read most of these? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, we don't know. That's that's the thing. Like, but I just kind of wonder, you know. Is he just trying to show off his knowledge in the fanzine by putting all this stuff in?
0: It's certainly possible, but it's also possible he had access to a large library like you'd find in New York and and might have been actually able to read these things.
1: He does seem like somebody who would have read quite voraciously, so I mean I can sort of imagine that maybe he has read some of these works. Yeah, Mm
0: -hmm. they certainly all seem to be English language in contrast with the Numerous works that were mentioned in both the Hollow Earth book and what was that one science fiction history book? Is that Roberts Adam Adam Roberts Robert Adams yeah, yeah. something like
1: that? Adam Roberts' science fiction history, yeah,
0: yeah, that's it. Um, where he talks about tons of French works from the 1600s, and none of those seem to be mentioned here. So
1: no, and I'm kind of thinking uh, I wonder if some of that stuff was difficult to obtain in in translation. Oh,
3: I would imagine so. Too, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, when we were talking earlier even how some Italian authors are difficult to obtain nowadays, I'm sure that back then it was yeah. very difficult to find that.
3: Yeah.
1: But, like, I think Aldous was one of the first people... I mean, I don't know who... I mean, maybe it came up a, a fair amount before, but, like, I certainly don't recall coming up with Niels Klim too much, like, that, that mm-hmm. coming up in too much of the the history.
0: Yeah. there Again, it's unfortunate that a lot of these fanzines exist only in fragmentary form online and not complete runs because there was a bibliography that one of the early fanzines published and we get like B through G or, or something like that of, of what survives. And it's kind of interesting to note what works they do mention. Like they mentioned a whole bunch of Marie Corelli works as well as R U R. And it would have been neat to have the entire thing to see exactly. All right. What was known definitively by these prominent editors of these fanzines at the time as far as like what works are out there.
1: And I think it's interesting too that first excerpt you read out at the beginning of the history segment was basically talking about forming a science fiction library.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: Basically trying to start a repository of all these books so people interested in the history of science fiction could start looking into it. Yeah. There's no Wikipedia around, right? So
0: (laughs) It would be a ways off. It does have some interesting parallels with how knowledge is curated and assembled and organized. So it's pretty cool that fans were taking this up that early on. And that is reflected in a lot of these fanzines as they did publish a fair amount of bibliography and history. There's three or four that kind of go over the same stuff, which is interesting to see.
1: So can we start getting into their opinions?
0: Yes. A lot of these are very (laughs) opinionated people, especially the magazine The Rebel, which was published out of Alabama. And there's this one article here, What's Wrong with the Readers? And the author says some pretty, I don't know, inflammatory things, but very opinionated things. So he says, Fan magazines are full of articles purporting to explain what's wrong with fantasy fiction. Some of them serious analytical discussions, but most of them simply sore head yells by guys who wouldn't know a good story if they saw one. I'm sick of it. The writers and editors take it on the chin. The editors are damn fools. They're hidebound fellows of a formula. They won't take good stuff. So the soreheads assert. Or the writers are slaves of the formula. They won't write good stuff because they know it won't be accepted. Ah, for the days of the old Argosy and stories like The Blind Spot, Under the Moons of Mars, and such classics. Yeah, I'd like to see those days come back too. But there's somebody to blame besides authors and editors. The readers. (laughs) The (laughs)
1: readers. Yeah, you can picture that red, uh, like uh, probably some like thick Alabama accent. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: But yeah, he can continues to go off on. Uh, he specifically uses the phrase "Tom Sawyer on Jupiter piffle" as a way of uh, dismissing all the other stuff that these, I guess, stupid kids are like. And...
1: Oh yeah, not a fan of late period Mark Twain, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. He concludes by saying. I wish the rest would stick to Flash, Gordon, and the Bobsey twins and give Fantasy a chance to go someplace. So he's... (laughs) (laughs) I guess want some really high-quality, thought-provoking stuff. Like Argosy used to publish.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, they did publish claimed.
0: Yeah. They published a lot of things.
1: (laughs) A lot of cool things. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, that stuff was fun. And it didn't... It seemed harmless enough. The stuff that was talking about exterminating drug fiends and stuff like that? That was a little... It's (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah, this one piece that just, like, it comes out of nowhere, and I'm going to read it out of its entirety just because it's so, like...
1: Well, it's just his opinion piece from this... Crap. What was his name?
0: The guy is Herman D. Kaidor, which which I didn't recognize the name, but...
1: Yeah, nobody remembers who he is. I can think of a lot of heroin addicts who are more famous than him.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But it appeared in issue number three of The Planet, And again, just comes out of nowhere. He's just, I don't know where this is coming from, but he says, In the informal discussion on methods of dealing with the criminal and abolishing crime, which was held at our club rooms recently, I advocated for the isolation of confirmed criminals, i.e. imbeciles and morons, in order that they may not be allowed to propagate. In Wisconsin and several other states, this idea is partly carried out with some success. In these states, such criminals are sterilized. If all civilized nations would adopt this method of dealing with mental defectives, from which class most criminals come, I believe that crime would gradually diminish until it is entirely wiped out and the world will become a much better place in which to live.
1: Are you a smart boy?
0: <laughs> yeah. Getting
2: um flashbacks to our last episode when we were discussing eugenics. Yeah, I yeah. know,
0: yeah, yeah. Let's just <laughs> force sterilize all the criminals, the imbeciles and the morons.
1: Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> it been, he could never predict that in 2023 we're looking at his garbage and being like Yeah.
2: This very crazy opinion from just a science fiction magazine
1: yeah
0: (laughs) yeah and i I guess he thought it was a good enough thing to print because he i guess hashed it out in the club rooms (laughs) and you know who knows what other things were said behind the doors in those club rooms in
2: 1930 yeah yeah to be a fly on the wall
1: yeah well i mean i'm sure there were people out there who are more than willing to go along with that kind of ideology so i mean yeah it's come up a little bit before, and it probably will again.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely some ugly attitudes okay. in both the fans and the writers, as I'm, I'm sure we'll see. Yeah, Maybe not so much in this episode.
1: So on a similarly biologically motivated note, I was really happy with the letter from David H. Keller, MD. He had some cool thoughts on the state of science fiction. He's is a, a writer that we haven't covered on the podcast, but there have been a few of his stories whose titles I wrote down, and I thought, yeah, maybe it would be cool to... Talk about them someday. I mean, like we were doing the amazing episode, and he wrote a lot of stories for amazing. And you know, there were so many writers; it's it, you can't really do everybody in the order that they might appear in terms of the episodes that we're doing. Yet, there's no reason we can't come back to them later. So, David Keller is certainly somebody who I thought, yeah, that might be cool. He gets a funny mention in that pioneers of wonder. He has a funny anecdote about David Keller. He says. David Keller was a really good writer, but his manuscripts, and I don't know, this kind of made me laugh because he didn't say this, but it kind of made me think because he was an M.D. Apparently he was like, I I think he was a pediatrician or something like that, which makes sense, but he's an M.D., and his manuscripts were terrible. His manuscripts were almost unreadable, and the editors (laughs) really had to struggle to make sense of (laughs) anything that he put down. And I don't know. I just thought that was funny. Eric Leaf Doblin. That's his name. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote down some funny anecdotes. Like he asked questions of Horning and Horning had lots of funny anecdotes about the people that he encountered in the community and that I read last month. What he had to say about John Campbell, which was not very flattering, but he also had comments about Henry Cutner, Amelia Reynolds Log, who will come up in our astounding episode actually. And many others. And it's just really fun to read that as a historical document as well. But Keller has some thoughts about the state of science fiction. And he also congratulates himself for including the most talk about babies and most babies in comparison to any other science fiction writer. David Keller, MB, is very, very proud of his baby representation. And I got to get it get behind that to a certain extent i mean it just it was pretty random but it was awesome like just just... (laughs) i write about babies (laughs) y'all
3: what cool
1: (laughs) and you know i mean i've read i wouldn't say necessarily keller's the most exciting writer but he is pretty cool i mean i've read some of his stories and he's got he definitely was thinking on a more I guess social level than some of his peers in amazing and not just gadgets and random atlantis right right I don't know it's it's cool he's written a few kind of more psychologically oriented horror stories as well, and I feel like maybe he was one of the first writers because like early on, you know science fiction was very proud of having technical and scientific writers, and maybe he was one of the first writers to make use of his profession in a way that was like integrated into the stories being a, a medical person. Right. Like E.E. E. Doc Smith always put doc in front of his name, but I don't think his stories were really like that. It was more like, right. you know, just super science and space, amazing spaceships and
0: stuff like that. And so,
1: yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed Keller's letter and his hail to baby representation.
0: <laughs> yeah. A couple of the other things that I thought were cool and these are the uh, write-ups of the conventions that they put on. So one that Sam Moskowitz wrote about, he details all the teenagers that came to the 1937 convention that was...
2: Yeah, which is the one that he he organized, right?
0: The The ISA. Yeah. Oh. So a couple of the excerpts from this write-up are George R. Hahn of Fantasia fame, who is 14, entertained himself by shooting spitballs at Jim Blish and William H. Miller amidst the gurgling of science fiction specials. Ice cream sodas to you. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, Jim Blish lived in continuous worry. The economical chap had spent 95 cents. Five cents more than his estimate. He came all the way from East Orange, New Jersey to Long Island, New York. Our guess is ice cream sodas. What say? Oh, man. Yeah.
2: Really capturing the teenage boy (laughs) energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely
0: a lot of teenagers doing teenage things, for sure.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, we'll be talking about Jim Blish a little more in a bit. Yeah. But it's kind of really interesting to see, I guess, where he went, based on, on what we have here to look at.
0: Yeah, and so many names pop up here that would become writers later on in the 1950s and 1960s as they mature into adults, but here a lot of these people are as teenagers, and it just kind of fascinating at how many names you really do find in these issues of people writing in letters or giving their opinions or attending the conventions in some way.
1: And some of them will be involved for decades to come.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Lifelong careers for some of these people. Definitely. And there's also a really funny write up of a pilgrimage that Richard Wilson and a couple of his friends made to Sam Moskowitz's house. Oh yeah. Like five (laughs) o'clock in the morning and they, ring the doorbell, and he's all confused and bleary-eyed, wanting to know why they were there. <laughs> and they tell him that Bill Sikora died, and he was just like, oh, oh, okay.
1: Yeah, that kind of was familiar, too. It reminded me of going to shows in other cities and like just like sleeping at kind of random people's houses because yeah. the bat was there and stuff. And like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sam's all worried about what's he going to tell his parents about these science fiction fans sitting in his kitchen and tell... 7 in the morning, you know, eating his matzahs and drinking his tea. and <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just kind of adorably charming. So I guess the last thing that I had that I wanted to read is a poem. Oh. And oh, yeah. These are the favorites of the author. And the, the poem is entitled Favorites, so get ready for some bad poetry here. <laughs> Burroughs, Cummings, Merritt, Klein, Burks, and Leinster, none so fine. Ed Hamilton and Vic Rousseau, with Captain Meek, complete the show. In the field of science fiction, they're supreme. That's my conviction.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Captain Meek gets mentioned. I was going to say, there's our Captain Meek.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah.
1: Well, well, he's in Asimov's Before the Golden Age anthology, where he has all these short stories that he's particularly remembered from mostly the late 20s to 1938 or thereabouts. And there's a Old Faithfuls in there and a lot of other ones from that time period, including some authors that will be coming up very soon. Yeah. But yeah, you know, that that's, that's pretty cute. It is. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, not the greatest poem in the world, but uh, that kind of stuff is just a lot of fun to read. And there's a lot of those little fun excerpts all all over these zines don't so. forget
1: wolheim's exasperating tales yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i don't even know where to start with with that one it's <laughs> over the top and it makes lots of promises about sex and all that and it you just get a bunch of nonsense it, it seems like wolheim was big into publishing very very silly things
1: sorry and flabbergasting tales yeah right. that's what it was yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> maybe makes itself is a bit exasperating but yeah yeah yeah
0: <laughs> yeah but yeah definitely dig into these scenes on the fan archive page and again we'll post a link to this in the episode description there's just so much really cool and fascinating stuff to dig into So I guess with that, why don't we start to transition into the fiction that was published in these fanzines as we are a literature podcast, of course, and foremost, though the literature this time around...
1: What did you say? Literature? Yes, yeah. literature. That's what we're talking about today. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's not the main character of this episode, but we are going to list this as a regular episode and not a bonus episode as we are talking about a couple of the stories that appear in some of these fanzines. Yeah.
1: The Doctor Who magazine that I... Was talking about that Dwin published. It was a not. I mean, it was mostly a a fan magazine, obviously, but it featured news and features of various kind. There was a regular short fiction section, and usually featured one story every issue. I will say that there were definitely fanzines that were more dedicated to short fiction. Yeah, in Doctor Who. Particularly, there were a few different magazines. Most of the names I can't remember, but there was actually a local guy. It, was, it wasn't that local, but living in town, about an hour away from me, and he put out these really good quality, professional-looking fiction zines, Doctor Who fiction zines, and it was like one a year for like maybe five years or something like that. And they were actually really good, like really well done. And so there are certain efforts in that sphere. That work out. But I think most of these fan magazines that, like, actually just feature the odd fiction piece, you probably won't remember most of these stories. Yeah. It's not generally, you don't really, I don't know. Yeah, like, we'll talk about it as we go through these, but, like, most of these are amateur or cast-off kind of works.
0: They they definitely are. In some ways, it kind of lends itself to the format, so fanzines are physically much smaller than your professionally printed magazine. Right. And mm-hmm. they have a much smaller page count. So these stories themselves tend to be much shorter overall.
1: But that doesn't mean the quality has to be less. I mean, no, that, that yeah, that's, that's true. That's, that's,
0: but uh, I mean, a, a story that would be like five or 6,000 words would take up the entire issue. So a lot of these stories that are printed in here are like 2,000 words or less. And there are a couple that are either stories that were rejected or were just like an unfinished sketch or something like that, or were written by teenagers who have no prior writing experience and really have no idea.
1: And often they're the zine
0: editors. Right, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So they get to,
1: you know, they get to print their stuff. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 So
0: let's talk about the teenagers first, Mm because in a way, I think they're a little bit more interesting than the professionally published authors, even though those are probably better stories. Then the Teenager Works, the Teenager Works just have a certain charm to it. And while I wouldn't want to read like a whole book of this stuff, it's kind of interesting picking a couple here and there. So Sam Moskowitz in the first issue of his zine, Helios, published, at first I wasn't really sure if it was even a story. I guess it kind of is. But it's Why Our Ship Doesn't Move, and he subtitles it, a science fiction story of human appeal and original thought so uh, so the five. title
1: is the title is definitely the coolest thing about the story
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's 300 words basically it's only three paragraphs it's easily the shortest thing that we're taking a look at tonight it's even shorter than some stuff we've read on air in its entirety so it's incredibly short and just to give a brief summary a guy named davidson is dying. His ship's just been ransacked by space pirates, and they're off with his goods. But six weeks later, they'll be dead, because somehow he turned their rocket propulsion tanks into vacuums, so they're not going anywhere. They're just like adrift in orbit. And this is, of course, an excuse to briefly have a sentence or two discussion about rocket physics, and, you know, look at how knowledgeable I am about science. Isn't that cool? So that's basically this story.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
1: and I mean, it didn't (laughs) It didn't make any sense. Didn't go anywhere. Didn't like. I mean, but it almost feels superfluous to even comment on that. Like, just yeah, it yeah. is what it is. He had the opportunity to put it there, so he did. And yeah. that's that's pretty much Moskowitz. I guess I guess he did maybe write a little bit of fiction later, but he's definitely more known as a science fiction historian and critic <laughs> than an, sure. an actual prose writer. So yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, I was interested in seeing what his fiction would be like, because we have all read what his work is like for podcast backgrounds. We read the Edward Page Mitchell yeah. section that he wrote, and also sure. I had to read, uh, well, didn't have to, but, you know, I read for the Olaf Stapledon background what he wrote about him. So I was kind of interested to see what his prose would be like, and, you know, it's... <laughs> I, yeah. I definitely have prefer his... Non-fiction works. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: there's a bit of a caveat with it. You know, he's really yes. young here, but...
2: He's um... young, and he does talk about, in his Immortal Storm, his unofficial society for the aid of fan magazines in need of material, <laughs> yeah. or Moskowitz Manuscript Bureau, right. yeah. which he advertises in Helios, which yeah. is where the story was. Yeah. And he, basically, he didn't have enough many times, so he would just bang out like very short stories himself. So it kind of feels like this might be something that he just really had to include because there wasn't enough material.
0: Yeah. Page filler, basically. Yeah. And that's, it seems like the case with a lot of these self-run zines where the author is also the editor. A lot of them tried their hand at amateur comics as well, because the comic scene, I guess, was becoming a popular thing at this time, and the... Comics on some of them are definitely rougher than the pro stylings. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a couple editors complained that they don't want their zines to become uh, a yeah. parade for amateur cartoonists or something.
1: I noticed that, and I was going to say there seemed to be some complaints about the yeah. amount of comics that were showing <laughs> yeah. up. Like, I guess it wasn't necessarily a reflection on the feeling about the format of comics, but just that the maybe the people drawing the comics were not very good at it, so they shouldn't draw comics.
2: Yeah, <laughs> kind of thing.
3: So, yeah,
2: and some of the comics represented the drama that was going on between fans because there was one that was when Bloomer and Blish were fighting because Blish apparently had ripped him off after he wasn't able to pay yeah. him back for printing. There was like he just I think he depicted him like doing the Nazi salute <laughs> or something like very very petty comic regarding that that feud
0: yeah it's definitely a good medium to be petty (laughs) jerk and you know caricaturize somebody in uh, visual form especially (laughs) when you're a teenager and you want to import these petty feuds to a nationwide audience well yeah
1: yeah and and you think you can do anything
0: yeah right yeah (laughs) so
1: there's a comment i have about one of our later writers that reflects on that but i think i'll save it for that because i have a, a way of blowing my fun quips a bit too early, so I'm trying not to do that, but yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know, not much to say about Sam Moskowitz, but he was a teenager, and he did his own zine, and, and and that's pretty neat.
1: But the title of the story and the subtitle already shows his propensity for being a critic.
0: Yeah, definitely, yeah.
1: yeah. It's like an Oscar Wilde title, like it's it's kind of one of these, like, <laughs> here, I have something Important and profound to say about the art that we're making here. <laughs> it's like, here, here's a story that will appeal to original thoughts. <laughs> I
0: think Wild was a bit more talented, though. Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: And also, I think he's being, like, hyperbolic. Like, I yeah, don't think he
2: no, really d- definitely,
0: yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah.
2: It does sound like a subtitle that he would use later for a, a nonfiction piece on another science fiction author.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's like he's, he's anticipating all these science fiction critics who would come up, like in the 50s, especially, and then yeah. 60s, who would be like, Why can't we take science fiction in new directions? And, like, why does everything have to be like a Western? And then.
0: <laughs> Certainly some of the academic criticism, so. too. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And more recent times.
2: Yeah. I think that one of the key skills that an academic has to have is having good subtitles.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Another teenager running his own zine and writing his own fiction was Jim Blish, who would become known as a science fiction author in his later life. (laughs) Multiple award winner, very well acclaimed. And this one is Pursuit into Nowhere. I guess he did a series of this stuff adapted from the annals of Space Patrol in his zine, The Planeteer.
1: Yeah, so The Planeteer is some kind of space pirate, basically. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. It, it reminded me a lot of The Prince of Space by Jack Williamson, um, just written by a teenager whose skills are very unfocused.
1: Right. So this is the guy that I was thinking of. and yeah. I will say now that I think the difference between a writer and everybody else is that eventually everybody else learns to stop sharing their fantasies with the world, and a writer... Just learns to get better at it to the point where he's like, yeah, now we can do this. And Jim Blish is that guy. This story is really bad, but I mean, (laughs) by the 1940s, he would be doing really cool stuff. His heyday was really in the 1950s. He wrote really cool stories like The Sunken Universe and Surface Tension, which are about like humans miniaturized tries to microscopic size and in and, and a new world that they have to live like that basically so a lot of the things he wrote about were like cool biological changes in humanity that's necessary to adapt to space travel or colonization and stuff like that but he also did a lot of other stuff we're going to do, talk a little bit about star trek later he actually james Blish, novelized all of the original series of star trek <laughs>
2: As we're speaking, I have his novelizations like on the shelf next to me where, nice. with all my other Star Trek books.
1: Yeah, I've read a couple myself. And basically what they are is it's not like the Doctor Who novelizations. There are several in one book. So they're like short stories. <laughs> I can't remember how many of them there are, but there's like maybe three, three or so every Trek season. So mm-hmm. each one contains like maybe six or seven Star Trek stories. And they're novelized by a person who had access to the scripts, but never actually saw the show. <laughs> At least not in the early ones. Some people say that the early ones are really interesting, like, because they they kind of portray the characters as he saw them in his head from reading the scripts, not right. necessarily right. from seeing yeah. Shatner and Nimoy, <laughs> right? So that's kind of cool. Blish also wrote the story There Shall Be No Darkness, which was made into the film The Beast Must Die by Mm. our old favorites, Amicus.
3: Mm. Yes,
1: Blish was born in 1921 and he only lived till 1975. I think he was born in the New Jersey area somewhere and he moved to England in 1969 and died five years later. So he definitely grew as a writer big time. One of the book's that I had written down for a future possibility for Chrononauts was the 1960 something Hugo Winner, a case of conscience, which was the first book in what became a series kind of, I think the connections are pretty loose, but they, the series is known as black Easter. And it's kind of this, it starts out as science fiction with a kind of a religious overtone to it and develops into this crazy apocalyptic scenario with demons and demigods and all this and magic and crazy shit. This is like pretty awesome. Uh case of conscience is is more like weird first contact science fiction and this Jesuit priest has to decide if if he thinks that this planet is inhabited by devils or not, basically. It's really interesting. And I definitely wanna cover it on the podcast. So yeah. I it's really fascinating to come to this like really early example of blish writing. Like He's not a writer I'm hugely knowledgeable about, but I've read enough of his stuff where I would say, yeah, like, I kind of know his style. I know his things. The Star Trek stuff is not really typical of him, but at the same time, it is. Like, I I can see why he did it. And he didn't just write novelizations either. He wrote the first official Star Trek tie-in book, Spock Must Die. So this is, again, like... The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, written by Don Damaso, actually places him on a level with pretty, pretty close to like Asimov and Heinlein and Clark in terms of popularity among science fiction authors. And certainly, those Star Trek novelizations are probably on more shelves than many other right. yeah. science fiction books, right? So, I don't know. This is... It Blish really became... And, and, you know, he was also a critic and and wrote a lot of essays about not just science fiction, but other... I mean, he he had a lot of other interests as well. He was uh, very passionate about music and classical music in particular. So, yeah, interesting guy, long history of writing. Yeah. This is just some story about a space pirate and his weird vengeance on... I don't know, there's there's a, a character called the Avenger, but he's, like, the villain? <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I kind of thought, like, maybe he should be the good guy?
0: Yeah, the yeah. whole thing is pretty confused. Yeah. I I
2: feel, I've, I've thought maybe he was trying to subvert things, but maybe he he could have just been, <laughs> been confused yeah. about it.
0: Yeah. So this was published in 1936, probably right around the time he turned 15. So I don't know if he wrote it when he was, like, 14 or right but really really young it reads very much like that yeah Yeah. it it really does
2: i do have to ask how would the two of you pronounce the navigator's name i have
1: no idea (laughs) i have no idea you know what i don't think blish i don't think blish wanted us to that's why he got rid of him like like within the first scene right he's like introduce this character whose name you can't pronounce and then thank god we killed him off Right, I think yeah. that was.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about ridiculous science fiction names. I, th- this one might be up there as far as the silliest one we've.
1: Navigator. So Quick. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so it is spelled T U V Q X Z dash J K.
2: That was close. Yeah. That. Uh, yeah. T- t- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just a key smash.
0: Yeah. He's from Ganymede, so if you want to picture what the Ganymede language is like, we would certainly be interested in hearing your comments on the matter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think it's interesting to see how early on, and I mean, I shouldn't be surprised by this, but how early on in the fandom, people were, like, making spoofs and parodies and all kinds Mm. of, like, it's just, yeah, it's it's not some new thing that came about in the 90s. Like, it's it's, just always been happening.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell with this one how much is tongue in cheek and how much is this a sincere adventure written by a kid. Mm. It very much feels like a comic book Prince of Space where we have our hero and the over the top villain who presumably are recurring characters through every story. I don't know. They trade some insults and they like shoot at each other with various science fiction ray guns there's time rays and disruptors and
1: and at the end there's a deus ex machina thing that's like not been mentioned anywhere else right i just <laughs> right. but yes. the thing is so i i saw that and it like obviously it's not great but it reminded me of one of the few ee e. doc smith stories i read i think it was called the vortex blaster and it was actually in a an anthology edited by mousequits mm. and it had A very similar thing where there was like the they had to deal with the bad guys or I think they were aliens or something like that it was a spaceship and they at the end of the story like the last page they had this well we better use the reality distorting bomb or something (laughs) like that and they did and and of course it was like oh (laughs) well it saved the day but it was like this last resort that we didn't know about till it needed to be called upon right so it was like Very unsatisfying kind
3: of
1: story writing. (laughs) Sort of. So, I mean, I guess, you know, he was just taking from that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And who knows how seriously he took it? He probably knew it was bullshit when he wrote it.
2: It still has the charm. It really does, yeah. Like, because I I wanted to look also at other Planeteer zines that were up on the the fanzine site. Yeah. There's just, like, the the first one has, like, some very charming, like, very kind of childish drawings for... Yeah. (laughs) And at the end, there's, it looks like just in pencil written in in cursive on the back. Subscribe! With, like, a big exclamation point, which just felt very, it was very sweet. It is, yeah.
1: Yeah. This one was interesting just in terms of knowing how Bush develops. (laughs) This fanzine of his didn't last very long, either.
0: No, it didn't. He did other fanzines later, um, (laughs) and he was involved in in writing articles, but... Yeah,
2: the Tesseract was
0: one. Yeah. Right. I think this one was hectographed. I can't even imagine what the process would be like. I'm sure it's messy and kind of difficult to do on your own.
1: Yeah, it sounds kind of messy.
0: Yeah, certainly time-consuming anyway. I'm assuming he's drawing and doing the graphic design all himself, so doing the layouts of the pages, all the stuff was more or less handwritten, and then, I guess type with a typewriter so these... i'm not totally sure how he produced the text but
1: yeah yeah one of these bibliographies is kind of sarcastic and it kind of talks a little bit like smugly about how some of these people did their things and it mentions all the magazines that blish started it's like yeah. he's the editor of it. and then it's names like a dozen different things and <laughs> it's like it's kind of the suggestion is well each of them had like one issue and then he's right. like, oh, i can't do this anymore yeah Starting the next one, like <laughs> so yeah, pretty much that's great though, I mean, that's enthusiasm you want to, you want to see that, and yeah somebody who's of that age in particular, right, you know, he's like it looks you can you can tell that so long as this burn it doesn't burn out, he's gonna do cool stuff, mm-hmm. and he does, so,
0: and the enthusiasm is where it really shines through with the teenagers from the. Pros to the I guess, DIY layouts of all the pages that very much look like you know hand drawn during study hall or yeah. whatever. It, it, it's just very I don't know charming and adorable to look <laughs> at and
3: yeah. <laughs>
0: These fanzines also were in contact with the professionals and would publish some of their fiction from time to time. I mean, presumably this is all stuff that got rejected from magazines like Amazing or Weird Tales or was stuff that was either too short or too much of a sketch to be uh, submitted to something that would pay money for it. So a lot of the fanzines would probably pay a lesser amount to get some of these big names in their zines so they could advertise saying, oh, we have Clark Ashton Smith and our issue. So we took a look at two of these stories, and by far the shorter of the two is by a Ralph Milne Farley, who is an interesting figure in that he was a sitting state senator at the time that he wrote some of his science fiction.
1: It seems most famous for a uh, series called the Radio Novels. It, it, yeah. uh, I think they're called that in retrospect now. But it's like uh, Radio Planet, I should say. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of books about the Radio Planet. <laughs> and I think they were
0: serialized. I can't remember what magazine it was. Yeah, he had a bunch of stuff in Argosy. I know he
2: had works in both Amazing and Astounding.
0: Yeah, he had a, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, a whole, whole bunch of places. But yeah, interesting. Uh, a, a senator, while writing this stuff um, so mm-hmm. kind of an interesting intersection of careers that you don't really see too often
2: yeah.
0: in the genre yeah
2: because he wrote political books under his real name And yeah. then he would write like sci-fi under this the pseudonym
0: yeah so this is a pseudonym yeah. his real name was roger sherman Hoare.
1: that sounds more like a senator name to me
0: right yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he had a lengthy so, political and law career you know he got got his law degree from harvard served in Massachusetts government for a while. And he was also big into this science fiction stuff. So the story that he submitted to the fantasy magazine that we read is the Rex smell. And it's again, very short. It's kind of a fun sailor's yarn. And there is a superstition that when the rats all leave a ship before a ship starts on a voyage is a sign that the ship is going to be lost on that trip. So, This is apparently due to a smell that a doomed ship gives off, and this smell has been duplicated by a German chemist out of coal tar, and he's testing it out as a commercial product. And the narrator sees the rats leaving a ship, the Mary B, so was it doomed, or was it superstition, or was it the wreck smell? Which is the name of the product from wreck and smell. Tries to fool his buddy, saying that the newspaper reported it lost, but. It really wasn't. Can you fool a rat? Who knows? Maybe. I don't know. It's kind of a neat, fun story. Uh, I don't really have too much to say about it. Yeah, there's
1: not much to say. A while ago, I got the complete short story set of Theodore Sturgeon. And when we did the episode uh, a while back on radio stuff, we talked about his story, "Ether Breather. And I think I talked a little bit about the early days of Sturgeon and how he was writing for McClure's newspaper stuff. And... A lot of the stories from that time now it was really interesting because it was he was obviously trying to find his voice and some stuff that he wrote was never published like in the early 30s it was only published later and a lot of that stuff's like really sophisticated and cool but a lot of the newspaper stuff is very like I don't know it's it's weird like it's well written enough but it has this kind of this I don't know like it feels like it has a it's, it's just trying to be a cute Silly story, or have an agenda, or like maybe slightly patriotic, or something like that. Like it's, it it feels. I don't know. It's it's hard to explain, but it feels like something I would imagine seeing in a newspaper. Yeah. Almost like it, now just that you feels, say that it
0: does feel like a newspaper piece. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I, I
2: think that 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 does that feel like a uh, the way it would it would be.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of an odd contribution to. To a science fiction fanzine, I thought actually.
0: Yeah, I think they were more chasing the name than the actual story yeah. itself. I'd imagine, because yeah. uh, a lot of these would advertise in other fanzines saying, "Check out our next issue. We have stories by <laughs> this big author, that big author." Surely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right? yeah,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> I guess I don't know. It, yeah, I mean, it it just seems like why would why wouldn't he write something like more fantastical and, and weird? Like he's, he says. He's just in this DIY fanzine, right? Like, he'd <laughs> do whatever he wants. I don't know.
3: It's yes. just...
2: Maybe the editors were just like, whatever you have on hand, we'll, we'll take. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I guess so.
0: That's probably what it was.
1: I mean, to be honest, I haven't read anything else by him. So maybe he's just like that. But I don't know. I, I did read a little bit about him. And it seems like he has some other stuff that sounds interesting and different. So I don't know. I mean, it's just... It's yeah, you it's maybe it's a prestige thing. You're probably right. It's that's yeah. what yeah. <laughs>
0: Certainly some other more prominent authors would come up in these zines who are still well-regarded today. And the other one we took a look at from this category is Clark Ashton Smith, Primal City.
1: Yeah, he has a story submission in the Fantasy Fan. Yeah. (laughs) So this isn't really the way that I thought that we would introduce Clark Ashton Smith to the podcast. (laughs) So I'm going to, I guess, I'm going to ramble a bit. I have a lot to say about Clark Ashton Smith. He's a writer I've been very familiar with for Over 20 years now, I guess. And I like him a lot. I I consider him a favorite. I love his prose. I think at his best, he's just like beautiful, macabre, dark, twisted, decadent. So, so good. I don't think this story represents that. I think that I will open this by saying, okay, I know at least one regular listener of the podcast or semi-regular listener is a big Clark Ashton Smith fan, and I need to preamble this by saying I consider myself one too, but I think that that being a fan sometimes means that you might be willing to criticize somebody that you really respect as a writer and you like a lot, and although I don't necessarily mean to be overly critical of Smith because I think I understand why he did what he did, I do think sometimes that writing fiction for him was on exercise and a money-making thing like i don't sometimes i don't think his heart was really in it i think his heart was really in poetry and that's what he wanted to do and that's where like his best fiction actually even though it's prose reads very much like poetry right and i think that like even though his science fiction stories are very inventive and very creative I don't think this is really the area where he wanted to excel. And I think sometimes that he was a very frustrated person. He was part of the Weird Tales agglomeration with Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Those three are always mentioned in in more or less the same breath. Clark Ashton Smith outlived all his friends. He lived till 1961, I believe. And he had long since stopped writing fiction by then. Nearly all his fiction writing is basically from 1931, 1930 till 1937, when Lovecraft died. He and Lovecraft were really big friends. They never met in person, but they wrote letters back and forth all the time. Smith spent most of his life in the Auburn, California area, and this is where he had his home. This is where his family lived. He was actually a person of many trades. Obviously, you know, writing was something that meant a lot to him, but more so poetry than prose. He actually published his first book of poetry in 1912. And even now, some people consider it like a really excellent work of poetry. And I I would say that his poetry is honestly stands really strong. Like, I mean, I'm not necessarily an expert in poetry, I don't necessarily pretend to have vast knowledge of the great poets and stuff, but I think that he was far better than many of his contemporaries, certainly a better poet than Lovecraft was. And I think as well as the writing, he had a lot of artistic endeavors that not a lot of people appreciated. Jack Williamson actually talks about this in his autobiography when he talks about going to Auburn with some of his friends, I think including Edmund Hamilton to meet Clark Ashton Smith. And Smith took him to his upper loft where he had all his grotesque carvings. And these are things that he made out of wood that you can see pictures of online now. And apparently some of them are every now and then they go up for sale and they fetch quite an amount because they're original and grotesque and strange, I guess. But Williamson wasn't very impressed. He didn't really, you know, he didn't seem to see a lot in what Smith had become was this really eccentric, loner, old guy living in the middle of nowhere in this, like, desert area of California. And it seems like during his life he tried his hand at a few other professions too, including a lot of heavy manual labor stuff like mining and, and so forth. He was really unable to earn a satisfactory living by writing, even though it was something that he really wanted to do. And... I think sometimes you can tell in his fiction, he recycles a lot of ideas, but those ideas are really cool. And I think if you get the best sampling of those ideas, you are in for a really, really awesome ride. And you're in in for some really exciting, beautiful, powerfully weird stories. And I think Smith at his best, his stories often tell of things like a person losing their identity or losing their being from some means or another. And sometimes it has to do with telepathic stuff, sometimes it has to do with weird biology. Um like Hodgson, he, he was very into not necessarily fungus, but like plant animal hybrid creatures. Yeah. <laughs> he has this like and, and in some of the artwork that he drew, he also did illustrations and and it reflects a lot of these things like really weird minglings of the vegetable and animal species and a lot of his stories depict that in really awesome decadent creepy ways and also things like like basically memory and ideas of memory and what it means to remember remember things from long ago and or strange points in space and time human beings having experiences of the otherworldly and of the alien and then coming back to Earth and basically not being able to function anymore in society because now they've been exposed to so much and so their their brains have been so expanded or their senses so enhanced that when they return to the world of humans now they're suddenly like everybody thinks they're an idiot because they can't like they can't function. That kind of stuff that Smith wrote so well and so many weird alien landscapes. He has this series about a place called Zothique that's supposed to be the last continent on the earth when everything else is sunk under the ocean and the sun is ancient and flickering and old. And Zothique is full of wizards and sorcerers and necromancy. So much necromancy. So morbid I think the first story I ever read from him was a story called The Isle of the Torturers. And it was a story about this king who gets shipwrecked at sea with all his servants who were escaping a plague on his kingdom. And they, they end up shipwrecked on this island. And the people of the island are depraved and they just want to torture them and put them through as much hell as they possibly can. And unlike Lovecraft, Smith loves describing just how horrible things are and (laughs) the actual extent of all the horrible things his characters are going through to the point where Weird Tales had to tone him down many times. And I actually am going to call upon for our upcoming talk, actually, the collected fiction of Clark Ashton Smith, which is available in five volumes. And like the Conan series that Nate was talking about earlier in the episode... There's a lot of extra material that goes into the creation of the stories. Lots of clips from letters and different things. And so it's pretty much the ideal way for anybody who's really interested in Clark Ashton Smith. But maybe who's already read like a sampling of the best stories in some anthology or collection somewhere to really, really dive in. Because if you read all these volumes, you actually will see his weaknesses. You will see how he recycles a lot of the same ideas and you will see the stories that he obviously wrote for money. (laughs) And yes, even though it may not have been much money, this was the 1930s. Yeah. People do what they can. Right. So, and I think getting that sort of perspective of, of getting beyond the Oh, wow. This like, he's awesome. Right. And he is, but I guess it's really fascinating to get to know some of the details and I guess just to give you a feeling of the Clark Ashton Smith style, I will just read the opening of the story the Primal City here. Now, I will say to start with, this is not Clark Ashton Smith at his best. I don't necessarily think that highly of this story. I like it. I mean, it's it's a pretty traditional weird tale. But I mean, in the sense, too, that traditional feeling comes from experience of things that came later. It does feel like a distillation of a lot of things, and Lovecraft really liked it, as we'll see. So this story starts with this passage. In these after days, when all things are touched with insoluble doubt and dereliction, I am not sure of the purpose that had taken us into that little visited land. I recall, however, that we had found explicit mention in a volume of which we possessed the one existing copy of certain vast pre-human ruins lying amid the bare plateaus and stark pinnacles of the region. How we had acquired the volume, I do not remember. But Sebastian Solder and I had given our youth and much of our manhood to the quest of hidden knowledge. And this book was a compendium of all things that men have forgotten or ignored in their desire to repudiate the inexplicable. So yeah, this is a story about two guys who travel into South America. No, I think it's Africa. I thought it was India. Yeah. And they looking, they're looking for a lost city, a lost civilization and they find it. And of course there's a, force there that they can't understand that destroys their minds and the story is shrouded in an atmosphere of I guess loss and kind of like what I was saying earlier like a kind of the one survivor doesn't even remember a lot about what got him there and I think the story itself isn't great but what I think that Smith does here that kind of reflects a lot of his his general work is this kind of feeling of like, yeah, like the mind has been so affected that at this point it's so dreamy and haze-like. And I think some of my favorite experiences of reading in, you know, discovering Smith for the first time. And I don't know, after having a, uh, a few puffs and just really getting into the atmosphere of Smith at his best. And uh, this story did kind of bring back a little bit of that feeling to me, even though it's not necessarily him at his best. And I think part of that is Smith writing in the contemporary milieu, like nowadays, or well, 1930s. I don't think that's really where he excels. Not everybody agrees. Interestingly enough, S.T. Joshi, when he selects Smith's stories to include in his anthologies, it's often the ones set in his time. And I kind of find that interesting, but I I actually... Obviously, what stories an editor selects to include in an anthology tell you a lot about that person, and maybe Joshi just likes the, the contemporary weird more. I think Smith excels in the really strange settings, entirely, like entirely dedicated to that. And set in an alien world in ancient Atlantis or Hyboria or Zothique or whatever... And, and it's a strange place where you don't know what you're going to encounter. That said, Smith and Lovecraft, in their letters, they like to share their dreams with one another. And Lovecraft had described several of his recent dreams to Clark Ashton Smith, which made Smith write the following. My own recent dreams have been pretty tame, but in the past, I've had some that were memorable. One that comes to mind was fraught with all the supernatural horror OF ANTIQUE MYTH I WAS STANDING SOMEWHERE ON A BLEAK TERRIBLE plain, WHILE PAST ME AND OVER ME WITH APPALLING DEMONIC SPEED AND PACES THE VOICES OF THUNDER THERE SWEPT A VAST ARRAY OF CLOUDY titanic SHAPES ONE OF THESE AS IT WENT BY PEELED OUT THE SONOROUS WORDS ITON NUCLEARION WHICH I SOMEHOW TOOK TO BE THE NAME OF THE CLOUDY ENTITY or one of its fellows. And Smith said that this was a dream that he had when he was a boy. And in his return letter, Lovecraft wrote that, Your unusual dreams are tremendously interesting, and much fuller of genuine, unhackneyed strangeness than any of mine. Autonucleurion! of what festering horror in space-time's makeup have you had a veiled intimation? So, Smith has this cool thing that he called the Black Book, and if you go to eldritchdark.com right now, which is the official Clark Ashton Smith website, I haven't checked recently, but when I used to go there, you can see an index of every story that Clark Ashton Smith wrote, including ones that he never finished, and those are excerpted from the Black Book, and what it is, it's his idea book. And it's really neat because you can see, so Clark Ashton Smith, you know, I've said, I've said a few things about him. And from my observations, one of the things that I notice is he seems to have had a problem with his attention span. Like he tried his hand at a logger work called the Infernal Star and he got to about 12,000 words and then quit. And that would be the longest piece of fiction that he actually wrote if it was published. So everything that Smith published is short. He doesn't even have anything as lengthy as At the Mountains of Madness, for example, from Lovecraft. And it just seems like he had so many ideas for stories and so many things that he just like jotted down in a fever and that never like never came to fruition. So, like, if you're just looking to push your creativity, you know, you can look at the black book and see all the cool ideas that Smith had that didn't use. So this one is under the title of The Cloud People, and he says, It's a remote mountain region with lost cities and treasure, deserted by human beings, but guarded by strange clouds that take the forms of men, animals, or demons. So the story was written in the early part of 1934, and he submitted it to Weird Tales twice, under the title The Cloud Things and The Clouds and finally The Primal City and it was rejected. And Farnsworth Wright said the story was lacking plot. Well, yeah. (laughs) And Smith pretty much elsewhere said not very many of my stories exhibit what is known in Pulpdom as plot. And (laughs) that's very true. And if you read that Collected Smith appendage series, you will see that Smith actually got many rejections and many of his stories were not. And he had to work on them and work on them to make them acceptable to this market. And again, like that's not to say that Smith was better or worse than the market, but perhaps just not suited. And I remember reading his comments about Astounding, and I think I mentioned that early on, is he thought that Astounding was too geared toward the Adventure Pulp thing, and he tried to write stories like that and the editors would sort of highlight the things that he was least interested in as being the things that they wanted to see more of. And I get both perspectives because they would say to him things like, we're interested in human characters and human elements of the story. And Smith would fire back something like, well, if you want humans, then why don't you just like, why are you writing science fiction? Not something else, right? (laughs) I guess he was just wanting to make it strange. (laughs) And he didn't care about having things like, identifiable characters and that was something that at least some of the magazines at the time were pretending to they were pretending to i guess have a a, an inkling towards right like they wanted to see their magazines grow up and be considered literary right so to have things like characters that you could identify with seemed important whereas smith it's all atmosphere so he wrote the story again in March 1934 and, again, was rejected. He and Lovecraft commiserated with each other a lot, So and Lovecraft was being cute. So he wrote to him, The nameless spawn of Yub and Yuff! on reading the second rejection letter. And he said, No wonder his damn magazine never prints anything worth reading, except by accident. Lovecraft goes on to praise the story, and he talks about how good he thinks it is. And I kind of wonder if, I mean, this this story is a lot like Lovecraft, more so than I think what Smith is best at. So, but he submitted it finally to the Fantasy Fan, which Lovecraft recommended. So, Mm -hmm. the story did not get accepted by Weird Tales, but it did end up in the November 1934 issue of the Fantasy Fan, which was being run by Hornick at this time.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I guess a couple of these zines were attached to people that had industry ties, but presumably they could use some of the same equipment and running his off.
1: So interestingly, the story was also reprinted in Comet Stories in 1940, and the editor made several changes, which are very strange, and the compilers of the Smith collection note this. Hmm. They cite an example where Smith wrote, Their swiftness was that of the mountain-sweeping winds And the editor of Comet changed it to, their swiftness was that of powered aircraft. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, I mean, needless to say, we don't need to read that surviving manuscript. I don't know what happened there. But yeah, somebody, (laughs) I guess, Smith, again, he probably was trying to sell all his leftovers. And unfortunately... Making money seems to have been a struggle for him. It it seems like, based on... He's also mentioned uh, a bit in DeCamp's autobiography. And Mm -hmm. from there, from bits I've read, and and even, like, sort of good-natured criticisms by Lovecraft, it seems like Smith had a pretty high lifestyle. He liked to drink, and he liked to court women, and he liked... I don't know. He's into things that Lovecraft and Howard were not into. He never, I don't know, he always seemed to be hang around in that, like, Northern California area, but he definitely seems to be a bit more of a decadent lover of the world kind of person living a bit like that, so Lovecraft said that he perhaps had a bit too much of an affinity for white women and songs. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Lovecraft, of course, so you can take that as you will, but it's just, it's kind of interesting that, yeah, he seems to have really struggled with this, but his stories at their best are really, really good. This is not him at his best, but I can see why having it printed in the fantasy fan would have been really cool mm-hmm. to see a story by, by Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah. And it's not terrible by any means. I mean, just these these guys getting their doom coming to them because they dare to pry into forbidden lore. Like, as with a lot of stories like this, I have questions like... I kind of wanted to know more about how it started. Like you really don't get like, it's almost as though the journey of going there and being exposed to whatever the cloud people are damaged the guy's brain. So he can't really remember even like, it's almost like he's living in this perpetual nightmare now where his life almost starts with going to the city. And he has these vague recollections of some book and it's like we don't really know what book it is but it's a book that contains all these hidden secrets and i don't know i liked it like that that was really haunting it was just sort of perfunctory like as far as stories like this go there's definitely better ones and as far as smith goes i wouldn't really start with this even though we're doing we are starting with this on the podcast but like i would have gone somewhere else probably if we were specifically gearing for smith and i do actually have an idea for a planetary romance type episode where I think we can incorporate Clark Ashton Smith and his, one of his Martian stories, CL Moore and her Martian stories and a Lee Brackett story. I think that would be a great chrononauts episode. I don't know about you guys, but yeah,
0: definitely. But (laughs) yeah, yeah, no, I definitely didn't mind this at all. I I actually quite liked it. I mean, nothing happens. It's just kind of atmospheric vibes for (laughs) a couple thousand words, but you know, that that's totally fine.
3: Mm.
2: yeah this is actually my first Smith. I do have a copy of a collection of his stories, which yeah is edited by joshi so i I wonder how that his his tastes do affect the the selection of that
1: yeah well, I remember you telling me the contents and I commented on that, and I said, well, he's included a lot of the like contemporary stories and and <laughs> I noticed too in some anthologies he edited like he includes i don't know i mean i i like I'm not, I'm not saying that these stories are bad, and the Dark Eidolon definitely includes a lot of the weird, otherworldly ones too. But mm-hmm. it just seems like Joshi focuses a lot on the the now, like the stories set in the here and now that almost could have been Lovecraft stories. And I don't really think that that's the best that Smith has to offer. I think really Smith excels at these weird, hallucinogenic landscapes and like. Okay, one of his stories is a really short story about these two guys from Atlantis who are like the last survivors of Atlantis, and they build a ship to travel into space. And they go to Venus, and they call it something else, of course. But they go to Venus, and they're all happy to be on Venus. And they can breathe there, so they're so uplifted and wonderfully overcome that they start, like, cavorting around and playing around. And as this is happening, the story describes how they're very slowly being covered by flowers and turning into plant people. And at the end of the story, they're plants. And they're not the same people that they were when they started. And, like, they're totally oblivious, but Smith is describing this happening. And it's just a few-page-long story, but it's so good. It's so trippy and weird. And that's the stuff that he's really good at, I think.
0: Cool, yeah. I didn't really have too much on this one. I mean, there's not much there aside from atmosphere but i did enjoy it the far-off landscapes and alien worlds are definitely more
1: yeah and there's a glimpse of that in this story there is yeah and you got to see the weird city but it's just a glimpse and yeah Yeah. in terms of writing i think it's like it's the story that goes smoothest in this batch but that's not really saying too much i guess so yeah (laughs) and then there is a weird throwaway description of the natives too which smith doesn't mm-hmm. usually do like he's usually a bit more classy than that i think but i don't know it's of its time i guess but yeah yeah it's just kind of a subhuman or something he describes them. so i don't know usually he's a bit better than that
2: <laughs> yeah that uh, yeah I did also want to mention the fantasy fan magazine that it was published in was one of the magazines that is known for campaigning for more recognition of Hodgson, which is really cool. Uh, Hornig, I believe, who did have a lot of experience with weird tales, more so oh, than it yeah. seems the others. Yeah, seemed really interested in weird fiction.
1: Yeah, yeah, and there were there were that came up actually in the material a few times too. Was yeah people debating about whether weird fiction should be included and like talking about the number of weird fiction readers versus the number of science fiction readers and yeah. stuff like that.
3: And, mm-hmm.
1: and that's something that still was a factor many years later. I mean, I, I mentioned this when we talked about Vintage Season by Moore and mm-hmm. Kotner. And the first time I had heard of Moore and I had been reading some stories and I was telling Howie from Cauldron Born Britain writes, it's kind of a buddy of mine. We were talking about it and, and I was saying, oh, I read this story, Vintage Season, and I didn't know it was going to be like this, but it was really awesome science fiction. And it was kind of his opinion that they, or she in particular, switched to writing science fiction because it was more profitable. And that was kind of, a, I don't know, he seemed to wish that she stuck to the sword and sorcery, planetary romance kind of stuff and mm. – I don't agree, but I can see I can see the point of view, I guess. Like, I think she was really good at the more thoughtful science fiction kind of stories. Like, I really like the Northwest Smith stories that she wrote set on Mars, but every <laughs> single one of them deals with, like, space vampires of some kind. Like, it's very repetitive. <laughs> yeah. It's good. It's really, really good. But it's like, you want to read, like, maybe one story a month or something like that at most, because otherwise you'll yeah. be like, they're all the same, like, you know. <laughs> Those space vampire women and and stuff. Like...
0: <laughs> yeah, how the genre question does come up in these zines is pretty interesting. As mm-hmm. the fantasy fan does make a specific remark that they don't want to publish science fiction; they want to focus specifically on weird fiction stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Because and...
2: they say they don't want to compete with the science fiction digest. Um, right. Yeah. Although it does right. seem like it's more just that Hornig had clark ashton smith and lovecraft and the stories, so he's like i might as well focus on on weird fiction
0: yeah and clark ashton smith does get published a lot in the fantasy fan Mm. um there were a couple others that we could have done for this episode i want to do this one because it does kind of focus on an alien city and it does tie in a bit to the whole ancient aliens thing though it doesn't really pop up that much again almost nothing happens in the story it's just like a weird atmosphere yeah and i think these
1: magazines don't have conscientious editors from elsewhere going, hey, I like your writing, but you need to fix this and this and right, tighten right. up the plot of a story and this and that. Like, I think that's kind of one of the reasons why fan fiction sometimes is such a dicey proposition is they don't have that right. kind of... There's something to be said for the Campbell or the Horning or whatever, like kind of figure standing over your shoulder going... Well that's not good. You can do this better, right? <laughs> yeah. Farsworth Wright rejected a lot of Clark Ashton Smith stories. He rejected quite a few Robert E. Howard stories too. The Veil vale of Lost Women was never published in Weird Tales. Right. Because he knew it was a bad Conan story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and racist as hell. So Yeah. Yeah. And and it's just like you have somebody over overseeing that that's not necessarily a dedicated fan. I mean maybe they are. But they they also have an outside interest, I guess, and they're like they're not going to play favorites necessarily, and uh, just publish any old thing. So I mean, yeah. you know, it's nothing. I mean, I I, I I it's pretty much what I expected this time around. Like I didn't really expect there to be any literary masterpieces, and I've read most of Clark Ashton Smith's stuff, but The Primal City is not one that I had got to until now. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. It was one of the few stories that I hadn't read. But, and I don't know why. Because it's not like I was reading them in the magazines. So I didn't see them in Weird Tales and Wonder Stories. Which is where a lot of them were published. But I guess, I don't know. Some titles you just don't get to even after 20 years. So
3: sure. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> read the Dark Eidolite or something. Get 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 a really good Smith collection. And if you really like what you read. Then you can get these volumes of the complete ones. And you'll find some gems that are not in the the more general compilations you will. Even later on like he's like many writers he did seem to be getting a little more into science fiction later on but he didn't write much after the 30s. There's only a few stories from the 40s and 50s and most of them are not that notable. But there's a couple that I really like. There's one called The Schizoid Creator about this guy who's trying to find God by performing Electro type experiments on demons, basically. And that's I thought was really cool. Yeah. There's just not a lot of of stuff after that time. So I think after his buddies who were hanging out in Weird Tales, writing letters and stuff, like they kind of stopped being around, and a couple of them died really horribly. I think he just lost a lot of interest in writing fiction, unfortunately. Yeah. So it's the way it goes. Yep.
0: I guess before we take a break, we just want to cover one story real quick that's going to tie into the story after that. And that is going to speak to the question of fan fiction and kind of where does it begin? So there is this parody piece called Cluck Rogers in Astounding that was published in the Fantasy Fiction Telegram in December of 1936 by a a George Hamm. And we were talking before the recording about you know who is George Ham and couldn't really turn up anything. It might not yeah. even be a real name.
1: I thought I came up with I saw I thought I saw him mentioned again somewhere. It, it could well be a pseudonym. I don't know. I'm
0: not entirely sure. But this one is basically a I don't. know, It kind of follows like a script. Like a, like a, yeah, so it good, feels yeah. like a radio play or something, right? Ex- like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we have an announcer and stage directions and, you know, music cues and all that. And, you know, it's very much clearly uh science fiction parody that yeah. is playing on Buck Rogers. And, you know, we, we get some insults traded between Cluck Rogers and the main villain, Killer Cohen. And this all takes place in the, Office of Astounding Magazine, and we get lots of in jokes to the science yeah. fiction community.
1: It didn't make me laugh once. Yeah. <laughs> it was historically interesting, though.
0: It, it was, yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: Yeah, there's one story that's mentioned, and I was curious to see what it was, where the villain is like, don't make me read you finality unlimited.
3: Yeah, And yeah. it's yeah. written
2: by Donald Wandry in Astounding Issue, September 1936. And I wanted to look it up because I wanted to see what that layler said about it. He calls it competently done. So, <laughs> yeah, you
1: know, now that you mention it, I remembered and I was going to I was going to look for that and I forgot yeah. to look for it. So, yeah. <laughs> I,
2: I just, uh, knowing knowing how Blaler sometimes feels about works, I wanted to see what he had said about it. So, seems he enjoys it fairly well. Yeah,
0: yeah. it is interesting what stories come up as far as what people are making fun of and what they're praising. Mm-hmm. Abraham Merritt came up a lot in the scene excerpts as like one of the best pulp authors around. And a lot yeah. of people really like E.E. E. Doc Smith as well, but... Yeah, some of these other stories just get kind of slammed, um, possibly unfairly.
1: I guess I didn't get some of the jokes. Like, I don't know why they linked Buck Rogers with Astounding, necessarily, because (laughs) he was published in Amazing, right? So, I don't know. I don't don't really, like, I, I definitely felt like I wasn't quite the target audience, but I don't know. I did appreciate the historical quality of it, but also that it was, like, the dialogue really kind of did it 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 kind of felt like something from a nowadays parody right like it was very contemporary feeling yeah goofing off about like the conventions and the weird techno babble and the (laughs) rays that do nothing and the i don't know it was just very uh it felt familiar
2: also the jokes about advertisements
0: yeah a lot of very in community jokes i mean I'm sure the advertisements in the magazines were annoying to the fans. I don't know exactly how much radio stuff was science fiction adjacent at this time, but certainly there were films which I'm sure they loaded up with advertisements at the beginning Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, it does feel very much like it could be a, well, I guess it does have some similarities with modern fan fiction parodies and that it is very Mm -hmm. self-referential in that way and there's lots of jokes to stuff that is related to the community.
1: And I didn't mention like when I first kind of got the internet, I did I was kind of looking into fan fiction a fair bit too and I found a lot of Doctor Who fan fiction and I found Usenet news groups you mentioned Usenet earlier Nate, Yeah, and you know like I found group specifically devoted to x-files fan fiction
0: oh yeah no fan fiction was huge on usenet yeah yeah.
1: and it was like there was so much and i remember being in grade nine i think and i had like access to usenet through a bbs or something and it was like everything was text-based and it was all through a linux shell on my dos computer and like you know i was getting all these x-files stories that people had written and Gretchen, you'll be interested in this. The first time I heard of Quantum Leap was because of an X-Files Quantum Leap crossover story. <laughs> <Nice>. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, more on that later, but uh, yeah. on crossovers that is. Yes. I mean, I didn't like I didn't think this was funny, but I could I could totally imagine it as a radio play.
0: No, definitely, yeah. It's written that way, more or yeah. less. Yeah.
2: I didn't really find it that Funny. I I did appreciate some of the jokes, but I didn't really laugh at them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I imagined saying some of the lines in an over-the-top way, and that was kind of funny to me, personally. (laughs) Just, you know, like, imagine him being set out like that, but... But other than that, it didn't really make me laugh. But I, We'll
2: have to perform it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I will say the description of the Astounding Offices does sound kind of a little bit true to form after reading the Astounding book. Um, talking about, yeah. like, mm-hmm. Campbell working in the back of the office and how everybody had to squeeze through, like, all this these huge stacks of, like, paper and rolls of, of paper. And, like, the Astounding Office was in the very back of this messy room and like there's this yeah i don't know it it sounds like an interesting working environment to say the least maybe not necessarily bad but and like meanwhile you're not allowed to smoke in there and it's the 1930s and everybody like really wants to smoke especially john campbell like <laughs> <What the fuck? laughs> you're not allowed to smoke because there's so much paper that could like catch fire instantly <laughs>
0: Yeah. I don't know. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting snapshot. I don't I don't really have too much to say about it again. Super short.
1: Yeah, yeah. and again shows how prevalent parody was even early on. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's not as entertaining to me as it was. Like and I, I just kind of remember like again it got me thinking another thing that I found at that time was like Star Trek parodies. Mm-hmm. And there was some guy I can't remember you know, he had one of those like typical internet handles of the time. But he wrote Star Trek TNG parodies of like several of the episodes specifically, and I remember really enjoying those. But and like now, I don't think I could read anything like that. Like <laughs> it's, it's, it would feel like a total waste of time. And
3: yeah. yeah,
1: I don't know. Parody and spoof is, I I think for a lot of us, it's the kind of thing that sounds really great when you're like younger, but. I don't know, I think maybe as you get more exposed to stories, those kind of things lose their appeal for a lot of us. I know for me, like, Hitchhiker's Guide is probably, like, the extent of my... I can see that that's a really fun lampooning of some of the tropes and stuff like that, and I really enjoy it. But much further than that, and I start to be like, yeah, okay, like, I get it. You're trying to be funny, and
0: that's cool, but... (laughs) Even Hitchhiker's Guide can be a little much sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it is true. Well, I guess with that, should we take a quick break?
1: Yeah, let's take a quick break and we'll talk about Star Trek, eh?
0: Yeah. 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 All right. so I guess one of the questions I wanted to answer and get at with this episode is we've been focusing on the fan community and fanzines is where does fan fiction start? I mean, there's a clear difference between modern fan fiction and what Jules Verne was doing with Edgar Allan Poe, but where does that distinction begin and where does it end? And and, and what are the transition points? And the Cluck Rogers piece, we just, talked about is an interesting kind of parody, but fan fiction that's played with a straight face or not done as like an over-the-top spoof, it seems to not really develop until Star Trek in its modern form, and that we have independent authors publishing things in independent zines using the IP of somebody else. And all the other instances of fan fiction we've seen kind of beforehand with the, I guess, one major exception of Sherlock Holmes have been these random one-offs. Whereas with Star Trek, it was almost like a movement that just sprung up in the wake of the TV show, which I think is just really fascinating as a turning point for both the genre history from a, not only from a literary standpoint, but from a fandom standpoint. Here you have for, again, with the exception of Sherlock Holmes, really the first time that people are publishing their own versions of established franchises and trading them with other fans and and publishing them for fans to read. It doesn't seem to be a thing before this, aside from maybe some of the parodies like Cluck Rogers. So I guess the story we're taking a look at tonight is possibly the first example of Star Trek fan fiction. It's always hard to quantify what first is, but this was Star Trek (laughs) written by Ruth Berman. Uh, The title gave me like the image of like a Mad Magazine parody where it's like shredding the show or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't understand. Is that the title that she gave to
0: her artwork? Yeah, yeah. I'm not exactly sure. Why?
1: It certainly doesn't predispose one to being enamored with the work.
0: No, yeah, <laughs> but but she was, she really was, and yeah, this was initially published in Pantapon number sixteen, which was Berman's own fanzine, and then it was later republished in Spockanalia number one in nineteen sixty-eight, which was uh, edited by Deborah Langsam,
2: Langsam and Sherma Comerford. Right,
0: yeah. Pantapon wasn't a Star Trek fanzine specifically. It was kind of Berman's own zine that was primarily like correspondence and her opinions on various things. But Spockanelia is definitely a dedicated Star Trek fanzine. And this is, interestingly, the only piece in here which kind of resembles modern fanfiction. The rest of it is like fictional nonfiction. Like there's profiles of airy various elements of the Star Trek world that are just kind of like fans making their own stuff up. But it's an interesting publication in that it is a very early example and possibly the first example of not only a Star Trek fanzine, but of Star Trek fan fiction. And there is a really good interview on YouTube with both Ruth Berman and Deborah Langsom on the same YouTube channel that runs the archive of fanzines. And they talk a lot about the Spockanalia zine and their involvement with the first Star Trek convention which apparently just drew huge numbers beyond the general science fiction conventions. I guess it was such, such a cultural phenomenon that it drew in a huge amount of new fans into the science fiction genre where not only did it need its own convention but it kind of outperformed a lot of the other general science fiction conventions. And I guess one comment that Berman made regarding the nature of fan fiction is that she said that the early 1930s fanzines that we were talking about earlier tonight, a lot of the fiction authors realized that good stories could be sold to professional magazines and you'd get paid for them. And stories that couldn't be sold typically were not good and nobody wants to read a story that isn't good, so... There was a tendency over time to see less original fiction in the fanzines. But when Star Trek came around, there was intellectual property and licensing issues. And with the huge influx of new fans, there was a huge demand for more Star Trek stories, especially after the show went off the air. So the independent fanzine format was kind of a natural fit for that demand.
1: Yeah, so that James Blish first tie-in novel, Spock Must Die, yeah, that was published in 1970. So that was pretty soon after the end of the the official end of the season three of, of the original Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. It took Doctor Who the same amount of time basically to start. Like while the show was on, there were no official continuation novels. There were the novelizations of the TV stories, but there were no like independent series of novels. But then as soon as the show got off the air. A couple of years later oh you know we got to start this right and it seems like it was the same deal with star trek yeah there was a pocket books line that really took off in the 80s and that was very regular but it seems like in the 70s there were quite a few published somewhat irregularly so
0: this just the scale of the numbers and the fans involved with star trek versus what we saw in the 1920s and 30s they estimate that about five thousand copies were printed of each issue of Spock and Nelia, which for a fanzine wow. is like huge. That's it, a lot. It, it's <laughs> up, like yeah, almost yeah. unthinkable. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
0: I, I think a lot of the pulp magazines had circulations that were only maybe one order of magnitude larger than that. Yeah, certainly the fanzines that we were talking about earlier tonight had circulations of probably no more than a couple dozen uh, some maybe not even that high
1: probably Um, not even sometimes yeah
0: yeah so definitely enormous numbers in scales that were probably not seen in the science fiction community again until star wars came around i i would imagine but by that time there was already a huge fandom landscape of media franchises having fanzines and active fan communities tied to that specific media property whereas with Star Trek, it feels like it's it's something new, that it had a huge amount of fans specifically tied to the Star Trek property. I'm not exactly sure why that is, like why Star Trek and not like Flash Gordon or... I don't know. It's just one of those unanswered questions that I'm, I, I don't have a good way at getting at, I think.
1: I don't really have an answer to that either.
2: Yeah, I have heard... It's hard to, I guess see if this is like the legitimate reason. But it is I've seen a lot of people attribute the popularity of, of Star Trek fandom to how women responded to the series and sort of yeah. how housewives who would be at home and, and would see the series reacted to to the series. And, and,
1: and could it also be that it's a thing of the 1960s? Right? That it's a <laughs> yeah. thing of that specific time period. And Being a show that, I guess, had a, if you want to believe William Shatner and Gene Roddenberry, anyway, a mandate of, I guess, showing that people like Uhura or Chekhov Mm -hmm. could be important and could be, you know, have important positions on a starship traveling the galaxy. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah,
2: I mean Uhura is the first African American character in television to not be just like a maid mm-hmm. or a servant or something. She's yeah a legitimate part of the crew.
0: Yeah. And the Right. Women in the Star Trek Fandom is an interesting angle in that it's a total inversion from what we saw of the nineteen thirties fanzines when there were almost no women mentioned at all in any of the mm-hmm. pages, whereas in Spockanalia all the content is pretty much written by women, which I I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It is quite something. Like, I don't know if television, especially being like a very different medium and maybe being perceived as more, I guess, for the masses, right? Like, and there's more involvement from all sorts of people who are not necessarily, again, like they're not necessarily fans. They're not necessarily 100% 100% committed to the thing but they, their influences and their, their way of thinking does enough to contribute a little bit to the whole and television has always been more I mean somebody like me who doesn't watch a lot of television saying this but like television has always been more accessible than stuff that people read a lot yeah, of that's the that like yeah. it's, it's, by the 60s that was very much a thing so yeah. Yeah. it's not necessarily a bad thing
0: It's just the way it is, so... Yeah, so, I mean, with this one, it's interesting in that it is... It's a crossover. (laughs) Yeah. So I haven't read The Fairy Queen. Have either of you?
1: No. No. It was certainly mentioned a lot in this. The author seems to be a big fan of it.
0: Yeah, no, (laughs) definitely. And it gets mentioned all the time in the English canon, and it's one of those books that I would like to read at some point. It's really, really, really long. I think it's like 400,000 word range. Yeah, there's
2: several volumes, isn't there?
0: Yeah, something like around 1,000 pages, Uh, Mm -hmm. maybe a little longer. But from all the reviews, it seems like it's an enjoyable read, not something like Clarissa, which I also haven't read, but apparently it's just Mm -hmm. an insufferable slog that goes on for (laughs) 1,000 pages. So I don't know. This is basically the Star Trek crew finds their way into the fairy queen. Um, Yeah. I I would probably get the references more if I read it, but I wasn't going to read a (laughs) 400,000 word text to prepare for the fiction story. Um, I mean, I'm sure it
1: would be more like, I don't know, maybe it would be less perfunctory than reading this. Like I, I, I had as the longest work in the episode of fiction, I struggled with this. <laughs> I didn't really enjoy reading it. I don't know. I guess, you know, it's just one of those things, right? Like like the fan fiction. I don't know. Every now and then I came across something that I thought was pretty cool. But yeah, it's just, it's... I've always, you know, like when I started developing an interest because, yeah, I just wanted to read more Doctor Who stories, right? Because there weren't enough. And it was interesting, but... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go back there a lot of the time, and I don't know, just kind of gave me that feeling, like, I, I I laughed a few times, and I got impatient a bunch of times, <laughs> and a lot of things were interesting, like, you know, she was uh, definitely playing out the Spock plus Uhura angle, mm-hmm. like, like, it was kind of interesting to know that that was very, very definitely on the minds of fans at that time, it seems. Yeah. Like... I, I kind of wondered if that was a more modern thing. I mean...
2: No. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that in another Spocknalia, they do talk about, like, well, Kirk and Spock as well. There seems to have been romantic angles right from the start.
0: Yeah, yeah. and in that interview on YouTube, they basically say that the smut slash fan fiction was written almost immediately. It was just not published in some of the fanzines <laughs> because some of the yeah. editors were too embarrassed, but they circulated copies of it anyway in secret
1: that's really interesting i i guess i've always been a little bit i don't know what the right word is like it's a weird fascination because it's not really i I don't know like this whole wanting to see a character that you envision because you see them on a tv program or something like you know engaged in relationships that aren't really featured extensively in the show but you just like want to see those characters do those things so you write these stories and it's like mm. I don't know it's 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 odd to me because I've never really thought about somebody else's character like that like maybe somebody I don't know it's 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 interesting it's interesting I don't know what I'm trying to say like people people have odd <laughs> fantasies I guess that I, I can't personally relate to but I find still very interesting
2: I think a part of it comes yeah. from just relating heavily to characters and perhaps wanting to Live vicariously through them or or being very invested in in certain characters and wanting that from from a like a story, I guess
0: certainly yeah. reflections of personal fantasy that come in a lot of these stories, I would say,
2: yeah, it is very well known that a lot of women were attracted to Spock right from the beginning, yeah, mm-hmm. I do remember hearing this story where. After the Naked Time episode, when Spock first expresses emotions and he breaks down, that there was apparently, after that aired, he got like tons of fan mail fr- from women who were <laughs> very invested in that. It's It's sort of this idea of like, oh, well, you know, I could be the person to make him feel emotions in a way.
1: Yeah, I kind of thought that even though she clearly knows all the characters very well, she doesn't really capture their voices at all, especially Spock. Like it doesn't doesn't really seem. It doesn't really seem like him talking. Highly <laughs> you know, logical. I just, I just can't picture. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like you were saying earlier, Gretchen, the desire to sort of like take your favorite fandom things and and smush them together. Like I think the Fairy Queen probably is a very niche fandom but it still seems like yeah like she's kind of like going okay these are two things that i really like and i'm gonna draw them together and i don't know like i think a lot of the thing that irritated me about the portrayal of everything was just how uh nondescript the characters feelings were about everything like there just wasn't a lot of i don't know like stuff just happened and nobody really like it just seemed like it, everything was normal and nobody really commented on it or thought anything about it. Like, I don't know. It's, it's so weird, though, because you think about Star Trek, the show, and they were experiencing stuff like this all the time. Yeah, right. Right? Like this this, this, this was. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I could kind of imagine this being an episode almost. Yes.
0: Right? Yeah. It does feel like a very original Star Trek
2: yeah, so, I was getting the same yeah. sort of, like, I, I could see it happening. I could see it happening, especially, even though I haven't seen too much of it myself. I know the uh, animated series is a little more outlandish at times. And I could see this happening in that as well.
0: Yeah, I've never seen any right. animated series. I've, I've heard mixed things, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I've heard, you know, it is a little sillier. And I I feel like there is a little more of a f- fantastical element to things in, in that series.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This kind of did remind me of some of the episodes where they meet with, like, the ancient gods and things like that mm-hmm. in the original series and some of those more fantastic excursions.
1: Oh, for sure. But it just wasn't, like... It didn't have an atmosphere. Yeah. Like, it, it was just lacking in... It wasn't engaging in, like, the concept were cool. And, again, maybe it's one of these things, like, if it had been longer and if if more thought had gone into the atmosphere of it it would have been pretty cool but it was just so like and then it did one of those things that i really hate i've seen this in a doctor who book that i remember from the eighth doctor range in the 90s where they start the story just describing like something happening to some people that usually one person that we've never really like we don't have any cause to think anything about that person or care about their introduction and then something like really terrible is happening to them and it's like just very abrupt and then switching scenes to something else and you're like well (laughs) who's that person like what is that so don't hear it's like counting on our knowledge of I guess the Star Trek crew and it's from Sulu's perspective and he's like yeah this is how he starts the story is like watching you know like Captain Kirk is saying something and then all of a sudden everybody's gone and Sulu's looking around. Where'd they all go? And that's the last we hear of Sulu till the end of the story. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
3: what? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> Why would you start it like that? And then then, then Kirk is just like, and then everybody acts like everything is normal. Spock speaks with contractions. Like, everything is just so weirdly done. But you can tell she knows the series very well. And then and, and the focus on Uhuru is cool. Yeah. Definitely. But it did follow that original series template too when the alien was taken to the enterprise and he had to contact his dad and get his dad to help out it's like his dad is the more powerful alien who knows about shit so (laughs) but at least he didn't uh, like it didn't turn out like charlie x where he was exiled to an eternity of anguish Or whatever that kid, whatever happened to that kid at the end of that episode. So, yeah. I don't know. It definitely, it read like something from somebody who knew, she knew what she was doing in that sense. She understood the series, but I just, you know, like it's, again, I feel kind of like it's wrong to overly criticize stories like this. Like it's just something that she wrote for fun, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Nate, you were saying she actually did publish, she did publish a professional novel in the Star Trek series at some point, right?
0: Yeah, and she also sold this one, not as a Star Trek story. She basically scrubbed all the Star oh, okay. Trek stuff off of it and sold it as a story called "Ptolemaic Hijack," which appeared in Worlds of Fantasy number four mm. in 1971.
2: A, a common thing that people do yeah. Uh, now.
0: Yeah, I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey is the obvious example of (laughs) modern (laughs) times that happening but yeah yeah it's happened a bunch and Mm -hmm. yeah she did write a official star trek thing later on it was the face on the barroom floor with eleanor arneson that appeared in the star trek the new voyages series oh god interesting
2: yeah. Also, I believe that Visit to a Weird Planet Revisited was also in the the New Voyages, yeah. which she also published in another issue of Spock Nalia. It was based on Visit to a Weird Planet, and it was like about the actors s- switching places with the characters on the show. Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, that cool. one actually sounds like a fun idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it seems like it's a mix of. Essays and just short fiction um, Mm -hmm. that appeared in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Spokanealia had a lot of poetry in it too, eh? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Very varied in the content, at least that first issue. I I didn't take a look at the later issues.
2: I did want to read because there was also the the cast of TOS knew about it and actually wrote some letters for it. Okay. And DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy wrote to it in the style of, of their characters. So (laughs) I did want to read a little bit of DeForest Kelly's and then (laughs) Leonard Nimoy's responses. So here is part of DeForest Kelly's where he says... Regarding your questions of how I feel about space medicine, and having a non-human aboard the Enterprise, space medicine I can take, even though computers have removed a great deal of mental challenge and true personal discovery. My thrill still comes when we touch a planet similar to Earth in the 1960s, where a physician's mind and skill are still the prominent factors, not a computer or space medical gadget aboard the Enterprise. As for Spock... What the blazes do I know about Vulcans? I reach for his heart and come up with his liver. His blood is green as well as an indelible stain. I recently brought aboard a young Dr. Mbanga, who interned in a Vulcan hospital, to get Spock off my back. I can't be bothered with rubbing my nerves raw about a physical jigsaw. I have enough problems without taking on all of Spock's peculiarities, mental or physical. He is capable of undoing every single thing I have learned in all of my years of medical training, and I don't intend to let him do it. I have warned Captain Kirk that one more Vulcan aboard our ship, just one more, and I will resign from the service. Huh. And then Leonard Nimoy, as Spock, responds. I have read with interest Dr. McCoy's comments on space medicine and particularly his complaints about having to treat a Vulcan. If you can imagine what it would be like to have a toothache treated by a screaming witch doctor shaking ancient instruments and yelling unintelligible incantations, you have some idea of what a Vulcan experiences when treated by the ship's surgeon.
0: Nice.
1: (laughs) So yeah, that definitely... Fascination with Vulcans
0: and <laughs>
2: yeah. Vulcan thought process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: What issue were those from?
2: That was from the second issue.
0: Okay. Yeah. So they, I guess they must have known about it right away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Kind of interesting how that works out. And the issue number one is pretty huge in size compared to all the other fanzines we take a look at. It's it's like seventy five pages or, or something like that, maybe even longer. The staples that they used, I guess the issue was so thick that they couldn't use regular staples so they had to use like roofing staples or something like that and they <laughs> had to like manually fold them in and doing so like damaged a lot of the covers because they just weren't meant oh. to be uh, used in that fashion what, what are the funny anecdotes that are in that youtube interview
1: this seems like a pretty but uh, this you had a little bit put into it
0: yeah it, it definitely did yeah a lot of content a lot of artwork and a very high circulation. I mean, five thousand copies is huge. Yeah. The issue that is online is the third printing.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to add about that story. I mean, I I did struggle with it a little bit, but it was also an interesting read. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's kind of how I think about fan fiction <laughs> of a certain vintage in general, right? Like it takes you back to, to things that like some of these properties have been around for long enough now that it it just seems like the concerns are very different and at the same time so much now especially in Star Trek and Doctor Who which we'll be talking about more at uh, length at some other time in the not too distant future but yes. you know things get answered a lot in the media I guess not just the tie-ins but the episodes too like you know they try to there's so many different series of this and that and they try to fill in so much detail about things that you might you, know, you might have had questions about and I think that's something that as well as the crossover things fan fiction always has this fascination with uh, filling in gaps and that's you know I mean we don't see it so much in this story from today but like it, in general it seems like like yeah doing something like filling in stuff about Vulcan, about Spock's background, about that especially is something that all the writers wanted to do. And I think like when the professional books started being published, that was the kind of thing that they really went for, especially not even even before, I think, just doing kind of stories that could have been TV stories, but maybe a bit longer, right? It's like, Getting into the background, getting into the the truth about Spock and his people, because <laughs> that's one of the most fascinating things about the show. And you could tell that Burman feels that,
0: right? It's just like, yeah, definitely a historically interesting piece. I mean, the, maybe the first modern piece of fan fiction. It, it's really hard to put the line on where it starts. Yeah, where
1: does that start? We don't but, know. Yeah. I'm not willing
0: to speculate. <laughs> no, it, it's <laughs> almost an impossible question to answer.
2: <laughs> almost uh, as impossible as it is to figure out when science fiction started
0: pretty much yeah 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 even if you trolled through all the fanzines through the 40s and the 50s you may, you maybe encounter some precursor to this i mean who, who knows
1: right i mean even like there are some interesting questions that can be asked like going back to our 1930s guys and lovecraft and all the things that sprang up around him right, right? yeah and I mean, it wasn't just his doing. It was all of them, but they were all like creating these weird metafictional scenarios, like secret books and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. the other writers would refer to in the text. So you'd be like, you know, oh, The Vermis Mysterious by Von Jontz or whatever. That's mm-hmm. like Howard's mysterious book. And the Necronopicon by Abdul Al That's Lovecraft's. The Book of Ibon. That's Smith's. You know, yeah, and all yeah. these other oh, like creating these things, right? And. <laughs> making it like a shared universe that they could all play it yeah and to me it's like see i always had this problem with the doctor who stuff in particular i guess because that was my first fandom and that was like i don't know i'm not really that committed to it now i guess like it's over time it's just been kind of like yeah i just like the classic stories that i grew up with mostly (laughs) i guess (laughs) But, and, you know, I mean, I remember there's some of the novels that are good and some of the new episodes I like, and like, but it just seems like, yeah, you know, like, I always kind of thought I don't really differentiate between what a fan writes that I like and what a professional writes that I like, like, where does that line come into play? How do you start thinking, like, this is legitimate? Versus, this is not legitimate. Like this is part of the the canon, as they say, right? right? It's a word that we're not supposed to talk about, but everybody thinks about. You know, (laughs) yeah. You stand on one side of the other, right? One side of the other of the canon debate. I don't know. It's just like to me, it's always it's always been this kind of. It's what you like. How can you think about it in any other way? So what you like is your canon what you don't like or what you don't know about is not and it's as simple as that Yep. so mm-hmm. if I want to include Sherlock Holmes stories by somebody else in my Sherlock Holmes canon yeah maybe I can do that but I mean it's not like you know I have a choice I don't have to include anything but the Arthur Conan Doyle stories and that's fine And I guess people who only want to incorporate the original Star Trek ideas into their personal headcanon, as opposed to whatever people come up with nowadays, that's fine too, if they want to. But, I don't know, it's just really interesting to me. What was that acronym you used earlier, Nate?
0: IP? Oh, intellectual property, yeah. Intellectual property, yeah.
1: So that's that's what it that I was wondering about that. I was I was pretty sure it stood for something like that, but I wasn't totally sure.
0: Yeah, sorry. I, I guess industry jargon. And,
1: and I kind of thought, like, yeah, that's 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 really interesting. People working in that playground, right? There's so many things you have to consider that you wouldn't otherwise, because <laughs> right. you're working with an intellectual property, right?
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, definitely an interesting piece. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say whether this is the first piece of modern fan fiction, but certainly after this, fan fiction becomes like a real thing that thousands and thousands, if not millions of people start writing for all kinds of things. And pretty quickly afterwards, for not, for not just science fiction, fantasy titles, they mentioned like Starsky and Hutch fan fiction too, which I, I thought was pretty <laughs> amusing.
3: Yeah.
2: Man from Uncle.
0: Yeah, right. as well. Yeah, yeah. All, right. all kinds of stuff.
1: yeah yeah that crossovers get so out of control it's really something yeah yeah Yeah. but you know people practice they get to practice their writing right so i don't know that's cool they get to practice their writing and sometimes weird things come out of it like twilight fan fiction turns into 50 shades of gray right i mean i guess that's good good
0: for the author she definitely made a lot of money right. off of it, that's for sure.
2: Yeah. I'm sure some people are enjoying enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Is this good for the rest of us? I don't know. I don't know if it's good for the rest
3: of us. Well.
1: <laughs> but Yeah. We'll be returning to the subject of tie in stuff and fandom and Venom, not too long from now, probably sometime early next year. For now, I think. Our last few episodes have certainly been, I guess tied in in a way like you can kind of see how everything works together and how everything uh, connects we've been talking a lot about the magazine fiction in the united states in particular and i wanted to actually bring up a very specific thing and that is what we'll be doing in december and we'll be talking about a very specific issue of astounding science fiction which is something we talked about at considerable length in our last block of episodes when we talked about the various periods in that magazine's history. And we'll be focusing on essentially a year after John W. Campbell took over editorship of said magazine and started to change things quite a bit. So we decided we're going to do a very special episode, and we're going to do an episode focusing very specifically on the July 1939 issue of Astounding Science Fiction. And our plan is that we're going to read through the entire magazine, and we're going to talk about the stories, and we're going to talk about the other things in the magazine, which include articles and letters and editorials and yeah I think it's going to be a fascinating look also a time capsule as well but also a fiction section that I think will be quite interesting so we have the first appearance of a couple of writers here we have Alfred Van Vogt or A.E. Van Vogt with his story Black Destroyer and Nate I believe you have read this story before
0: yeah, I read maybe half of Voyage of the Space Beagle, and I think this was included in that. Yes,
1: it's the first okay. segment of Voyage of the Space Beagle, so essentially. Yes,
0: I have read this one. I guess we'll see how I feel when I revisit it. I wasn't too into it the first time, but at the first time I read it, I guess it didn't really understand the concept of a fix-up novel, and I just wasn't into the... Yeah, and I get that, and I think
1: it gets less good as it goes on, but when you see Black Destroyer in 1939, July, I think you'll like it. I like it a lot. I, I think it's a great story. I'm not familiar with everything from the magazine, though, and certainly City of the Cosmic Rays by Nat Schachner is not one that I'm familiar with. I've heard his name before, looking forward to checking it out. One... That I certainly do know is Greater Than Gods by C.L. Moore. We talked about Vintage Season a little bit earlier and we did an episode on that not that long ago. You should listen to that it's one of our favorite stories that we've done this year, I think. There's also Trends by Isaac Asimov, which is the first appearance of Asimov in Astounding, I believe... I believe that he might have had something published in Amazing before this, but it wasn't much. And he'd been trying to submit stories to Astounding for quite some time by the time this one got in, So, I mean, that's a big deal. Our first Isaac Asimov story. I don't. We're a science fiction, literature, and history podcast, so we have to do some of the well-known names. So, Isaac Asimov, an author that I loved so much as a kid growing up. And it's a very big influence on me personally, even though I'm not sure I would revisit too many of the novels now, maybe a few of them, but I don't know. I can always recommend his short stories. He's He's one of the people that probably got me super into reading short stories because he knew how to distill that to a fine art. And I personally feel like even today, I feel like I would say that some of his short stories probably stand out. But this one trends. It's a very early example, so we'll see how that goes. There's also Lightship by Nelson S. Bond, and don't know that one, but I have read something by him, and I'm not looking forward to that one. <laughs> Hopefully, it's better than what I read, <laughs> but we shall see. There's also The Moth by Ross Rocklin, and Ross Rocklin is an author that I have not read before, but I am. I don't know. His name has come up a few times too, and I'm also curious about him. As with Amelia Reynolds Long and her story, When the Half Gods Go. Amelia Reynolds Long is somebody who has published in Weird Tales quite a bit, apparently. So we can see another crossover there with Astounding. And as well as that, there's a bunch of articles. There's stuff by Willie Lay. Leo Verna seems to be writing about artificial intelligence, so that'll be interesting to read about, considering (laughs) One and other stuff we've done in that field. But yeah, we're just going to talk about the whole issue. We're going to talk about it kind of from the now perspective, but also from the perspective of somebody who might have been reading it back then and what they might have thought about all these stories. Some of the authors are new to me. Some of them are not. I'm looking forward to rereading the more story i think that's gonna be really cool and i personally really like the bad vote so and i will be defending that probably locally <laughs> <laughs> but we'll,
0: we'll see uh, how it goes it'll be a fun episode
2: yeah 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 definitely looking forward to reading more of more
0: yeah same
1: more more sounds good
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah there'll be some interesting things to comment on for sure uh we'll see what we want to spent time with with the uh, articles and there's a letter section as well the analytical laboratory and brass tacks and i don't know Cabo seems to have been like marketing the magazine kind of as being controversial and kind of like pushing the boundaries a little bit so this is the pre-second world war period and i think that that makes a big difference in a way like this i mean it's not quite free obviously it's happening right as this magazine is coming out but not you know, This is anyway. Yeah, yeah I and mean, this is like... This is before Camel really got pedantic, I think. And it's like it's an exciting time in his editorship. And we're getting introduced to Van Vogt and Asimov for the first time in this issue. Van Vogt's got a thing with the fans, too. We didn't really get into the 40s fandom, but in the 40s, we get your thing where Van Vogt wrote his book, Slan, about... Mutant people and their powers and hidden tentacles, <laughs> and I guess a phrase that was used among the fandom at that time was "fans are slants," and I guess it kind of goes along with this idea that the fans are special, right? And the fans are we're a special community, a special people, and that seems to be something that was developed pretty early on as a feeling of that that. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've always kind of been a little wary and suspicious of it in general, I suppose, but it's sweet to see that kind of attempted bonding and camaraderie and stuff like that. So, But yeah, I think the evil communist Esperanto practicing people are attempting to take over my hectograph machine, and I'm going to have to fight them off before they publish some scurrilous material under my name. And I think you all are implicated, I'm sorry to say. But I think we know the names of some good lawyers. And we won't be releasing an issue of the legal ramifications of the Cordonauts podcast. But maybe we'll write an article about it in our fanzine. Until then, though, I think we're signing off for now. We will see you next month when we will have some other content. We don't quite know what it is yet. But it'll be something interesting, I guarantee. Until then, we have been and always will be chrononauts.